Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast of informal and approachable conversations about big ideas in the realms of philosophy, religion, politics, psychology, and sociology. I am your host, Marshall McCready. Just so you know, this podcast may contain offensive language and mature content inappropriate for children. Hello there. This is the Fighting Enemy podcast, and you are listening to episode three. And in episode three, I am bringing to you a conversation that I had with my friends Micah Brower and Ram Prasanna, you know Ram from the last podcast, about the first section of a book called Pragmatism and Other Writings, uh, which is a collection of lectures, uh, transcripts of lectures, and essays uh, given and composed by the 19th century philosopher and psychologist William James. He was late 19th century, early 20th century. And we had this conversation as part of a book club meeting. We were in a book club with some other friends, including Nathan, the guy in the first podcast. And uh, it's a pretty young book club. We've only read one book so far. That book was The Divine Conspiracy, which is a, a book about Christianity, by the Christian philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard. You'll actually hear Micah reference that book, not by name, um, but he'll, he'll mention the other book, um, and that's the book he's, he's referring to, The Divine Conspiracy. Um, I thought it would be interesting and worthwhile to record the conversations that we have during this, this book, these book club meetings on William James for two reasons. Uh, the first one is just in case a member of the book club isn't able to make it and they want to catch up. But the second reason, and this is the primary reason, is that I actually think it might be worthwhile and interesting to share these conversations with a broader audience. I know I personally enjoy listening to just a group of people who I can relate to on, on, on a certain level, just have an informal conversation about deep texts, um, you know, in philosophical works or literary works. And, um, you know, none of the people in the book club, myself included, we don't have any formal education in philosophy. We like philosophy. I actually met Micah at the UT Dallas Philosophy Club. He was one of the people who started the club. And I met Ram at, at the University of North Texas Philosophy Club. And so the, we're interested in this and we are invested, but we're also not terribly educated. Um, but that actually might be a good thing because that might mean our conversation might be something that most people can connect with um, without it being, you know, too highbrow or anything like that, too abstract or high level. Um, we, b- before I uh, transition over to the recording, I just wanted to uh, share a few notes. We mention a couple books in this podcast. And I just wanted to say that these books will be linked in the show notes of the episode, and they include uh, the version of the book that Ram and I have. Micah actually has a different version of Pragmatism and Other Writings. And uh, of course, the the main content, the content written by James, will be largely the same, but Micah's book actually had a different preface than mine and Ram's, which turned out to be a good thing because it had new information. But in addition, Ram mentions a book called The Metaphysical Club, um, this is a, a book, it's a collection of kind of biographies, but also um, f- kind of a background, I guess, on the philosophical, philosophical tradition of pragmatism. And Ram really recommends this book. I have yet to read it, but I want to. 
In addition, I mentioned a book called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margins of Error. I would highly recommend this book. It's by a woman, a journalist named Katherine Schultz. She has a pretty popular TED Talk that you might have seen at some point. Um, also, there's uh, a book, uh, The Sociology of George Zimmel. There's Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And also the book I mentioned, Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, oh, and lastly, uh, The Righteous Mind by social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Um, so th all those books will be linked below. Um, and last thing I wanted to say is that I will be bringing you some more recordings, um, hopefully, of these book club meetings as we have them. And I'm, I'm hoping to create a kind of series. Um, and um, you'll, you'll be hearing the voices of some familiar characters. Um, in, in the book club, we have myself, Ram, Micah, Nathan from the first podcast, um, and then some of other, our other friends who I will introduce to you at a later point in time. So without any further ado, here is our conversation about the first two lectures of pragmatism, as well as, the, as, well as the, uh, some background information on William James and the philosophy in general. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so this is Marshall's voice. Hello, this is Ram's voice. Yeah, I'm Micah. Cool. So you brought your, what we're talking today about, about William James, the preface in the first two pragmatism lectures. Wait, so you brought your, you brought things with quotes? Yeah. You want to take a look at it? Did you type them all out on your surface? Yeah. So I... Oh my gosh. Just a few quotes. That, I mean, a I few? Just... <laughs> oh my god. This is awesome. That's it. Yeah, I just underlined the things I want to talk about. Dang, okay. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably have to probably... <clears throat> yeah, those were just quotes that I thought were interesting. They might be stupid. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't think... I mean, I, I like the whole book. I don't... You know, there was... Um, that was one of the things I was going to say. I was just going to say I really like his writing. Yeah. Like... He's a romantic writer. Yeah, very romantic. Like, <laughs> that was... That was the one thing that the the guy in the introduction okay. said. Um, like he was criticized for writing too well, too clearly. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, my the the guy whoever wrote my introduction, he said that too. Where he said that he he put it well. Where he said something like James was more concerned with writing in a way that people, people could understood. understand yeah. than like in the and then in the like really detailed internal consistency of his but I mean he, like technical jargon and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. so what, what was what stood out to you about your introduction okay um alright before we get started how do you how do you all know each other oh yeah the oh. UNT philosophy club that's right okay. yeah, yeah we yeah. both uh, yeah that was the first place we ever met it was, it was that club I think yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think I only know you because of that. I don't think I, yeah, probably. Because he's a, you're a physics, he's a physics major. Oh, sick. I'm a physics undergraduate. Okay. Undergrad right now. So, I'm going into my last year. Nice. Yeah. But we both, I think we both talk, like, if there was, like, a ranking of people who talk the most, and then you went to philosophy club, like, Ram and I would be oh, pretty close to the top. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So. I'm so obnoxious. I'm. It's bad. Oh no, <laughs> me too. <laughs> cool. So yeah, and then uh, well, you were the first one. You were like, "Hey, we should grab coffee sometime." And then we had this great conversation about 
Yeah, because I, I remember you, uh, so I could, I remember you talking in philosophy club and <laughs> I remember like there were a few words that stood out to me and I was like, this guy knows Jordan Peterson. And I told him, <laughs> I was like, he knows Jordan Peterson. He listens to him. Um, uh, and I was like, <laughs> but at the time I, I didn't just, I agree with Jordan Peterson on a, on a few things that he says. So I was like, he, he, he knows Jordan Peterson. And then one day after uh, Philosophy Club, we talked. And you're like, do you know Jordan Peterson? And I was like, But then I was like, oh, okay. We're like very similar. That one conversation after Philosophy was very interesting. So I was like, oh, we should definitely get talking. Yeah, he was more... Well, he, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong. I think like our divide was like... I'm. I tend to be more in agreement with like people like Jonathan Haidt, and I would mm-hmm. I think Jordan Peterson too, where yeah. they're like more intuitionists, where mm-hmm. they they're skeptical about rationality, mm-hmm. and I think you were coming from a, a place of Sam Harris, <laughs> of a more Sam Harris type mm-hmm. focus but, on rational. And it was we were just talking that for you. Yeah, so. and after we talked, I read Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind, and um, I mean I agree with everything he says. I don't think I disagree with like anything Jonathan Hyde said in that book. Um, of course, I have no like formal education in philosophy or psychology, so. Well, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you're getting education right now. Well, in sociology, right. I'll be going into psychology. But is there not an overlap there? There is some, but it's it's theoretical. I think more than anything. Like I'm not reading any of. Oh, I am actually. I mean, there's some overlap, but it's. I'm not really reading any psychological studies. Just there happens to be like I read Freud in my mm-hmm. religion class, or mm-hmm. I read I read William James in my religion class, yeah. sociology of religion, and so and in my other theory class, there are people who are both sociologists and psychologists. Mm-hmm. But it's not. I don't. I would. I would never go around and say that I have any education in psychology. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how he's a psychologist turned philosopher. Yeah. Well, he's actually, he got his MD. Yeah. And then he went to uh, uh, psychology, or yeah, psychology, wrote one of like the principal books in psychology. People still read his principles of psychology yeah. today. Yeah. It's one of the most recommended books, which is like insane. And then he was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm philosophy now. Insane. Mm-hmm. Insane yeah. to me. And it was also interesting to me that he started out. Artist, like as an artist, mm-hmm. I didn't know that about him until I read, I read the preface. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was one thing that I thought was really interesting. Is in the preface how, growing up, I knew his dad was a Christian, and he would ask him and his brother, who's like a pretty famous novelist, like different questions regarding philosophy and theology that haven't been solved. I'm just gonna like pose the questions and let them duke it out. Really? <laughs> and just kind of, and this is like the dinner time discussions. Oh, like, that's so cool. Oh. Well, and his dad. You, you said that his brother was a, no, a novelist? Yeah. yeah. And his dad was also a, uh, a, philo- like a philosopher. He was a, yeah, he was a religious philosopher. Yeah. His mm-hmm. dad was. And I think what, it says that Alice James was a diarist, right? His, his sister. Sister, yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I listened to, one of my favorite books that I listened to on an audiobook is called, um, something like, Oh, crap, I'm gonna, I can't remember the main title, but the subtitle is like, Adventures in the, in the Margin of Error. 
I think it's just mm-hmm. called Being Wrong or something like that. And it's <laughs> this great book about... It, the whole book is about why people get stuff wrong. And like statistically speaking, or no, uh, it's like it, oh crap! I deleted the app. I had I'll find it. Um, it was like um, it's just adventures in the margins of error, or something like that. And it was by this. She's a journalist, so it's, she's not a psychologist or anything. But she interviewed a bunch of psychologists, and she references James, but she also references James's sister, who also oh. had like a psychological bent to her writing is really interesting um and i remember loving the quotes from alice james yeah Yeah. that's interesting Mm -hmm. yeah one of the things that uh, stood out to me about like james i read i read this book as well the metaphysical club which is like about a club that took place in cambridge between uh basically like pragmatists before they were known as pragmatists. Okay. Uh, but when I was reading this book, uh, <laughs> one of the funny things about William James is that he's like super indecisive. Like <laughs> really. Like, uh, I mean, obviously with his career, but also like one of the things that stood out was his son. Like he named his son and he his son didn't like it. So he named him something different. <laughs> and then he named him something different again because his wife hated it. <laughs> He's like, oh, like, what is going on? Yeah, it was interesting. And he he did the same, like, later on, he did the same thing for, like, an offer with a college uh, for uh, another college for, uh, I think, tenure or something. Like, that oh, wasn't oh. Harvard? Or was it Harvard? I forget. Um, no, it, he was getting recruited for, uh, I think, Johns Hopkins. Okay. Uh, he, apparently he was also like from he was prolific as far as I know mm-hmm. like with the like he was constantly giving lectures and like um, traveling mm-hmm. and writing books and later in this book there's a some there's an essay that he writes I, we haven't read it gotten to it yet we'll get to it eventually mm-hmm. about habits and I think he was someone who was constantly thinking about like self hacking or something yeah. you know like, to try to be more productive with his habits. From from how I see pragmatism, it seems like he wants like from what I've like from the introduction specifically, it seems like it's like like you said that one quote, it's like it's for like common day people for practical purposes. It's not uh something to be like uh, <laughs> something like abstract. Yeah. Quote, right. Yeah, he even says in one of the, in I think the first lecture that it's anti-intellectualist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I thought was interesting at, at, about uh, the inter- the preface in my version, the Penguin's Classics version, was that it talks about some se- several sociologists and thinkers who were pragmatists. Like it talks about Emil Durkheim. Yeah, it, it says Emil Durkheim was a was a yeah, pragmatist. He started to give a, a lecture on pragmatism. Yeah, and a Durkheim is my is like I consider myself a, Dur- a Durkheimian sociologically. Like uh, you, you kind of he was like a functionalist. So you kind of either, very broadly speaking, you you tend to like Durkheim more, or uh, I don't want to make that distinction. It's kind of silly. Or Marx more. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I like Durkheim. And then it talks also about George Simmel, who is one of my other favorite sociologists. He's a German sociologist, and I read him in my theory class. And I, I actually have his one of George Simmel's so, uh, 
things here. And there was a thing I was going to read later mm-hmm. that related to something that James said. And also, uh, what was interesting about our preface is that the author is talking about how pragmatism kind of like predicted postmodernism in a way, or it kind of led it like it, it's it can you can connect it to postmodernism in a way because it there's this just fantastic um, thing in this so well written here. Let me find it. Let's see. I think it's uh. Yeah, because if I'm if I'm not wrong, I think pragmatism was like at the start of modernism, right? Like the modern so on, quote unquote modern world, maybe. Oh yeah, let me just read you this paragraph by this by the guy who edited this book. He says, uh, "James has now, of course, been rediscovered in a historical and cultural moment that is somewhat different from the one he first helped to energize." This is the moment we have come to call postmodern, if only because it seems to exist both in continuity with and in disjunction from the cultural movement just preceding it. By cultural movement, I simply mean a time whose general intellectual framework and emotional tone possesses a distinctive and indiscriminable feel for those who live in it. While such structures may be difficult to define precisely because they are composed of nothing more than palpable patterns of impulse, restraint, aspiration, foreboding, confidence, or distress. They nonetheless lend an unmistakable ethos and coloration, whether consciously or subconsciously, to one's experience in the social world. Okay, so here's the interesting part, I think. Viewed in these terms, the contrast between James's so-called modernist movement and our so-called postmodernist one might be reconceived as the difference between an era in which belief in life's fundamental unity and coherence has been seriously eroded, or at least fundamentally questioned, without loss of a nostalgic desire for its recovery, so that's the modernist time, and an era that, in one of its bleaker versions, acknowledges that life seems to lack any sense of underlying unity or purpose at all, beyond, perhaps, the pursuit of pleasure and the creation of a therapeutic culture to sustain it, that in one of its most robust expressions insists that bricolage, I don't know how to pronounce that, parody, irony, playfulness, anarchy, and jouissance may provide new avenues to the sublime. So I thought that was really interesting where it's saying pragmatism might create this bridge between the two cultural movements. Mm -hmm. And just the writing there because I thought I was looking at. Well, let's see here. Anything else y'all have about the prefaces that stand yeah, for you? Yeah. Um, this preface is a really a synopsis of James's viewpoint, so I think we'll discuss it more. Yeah, later, mine was too. Um, one thing he mentions, which I guess it's in the first two lectures, was. Uh, the direct quote, like, a philosophy is the expression of a man's intimate character, and all definitions of the universe are but deliberately adopted reactions of human characters upon it. Hmm. And so basically your, how you feel about the world determines your philosophy about it, which I think is true, but I was mm-hmm. also thinking about the inverse of that as well. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, is if you change your view on how the world works, that changes your character as well. 
because there's definitely like in the first lecture, James spells out how these types believe these things and view the world mm-hmm. this way on either side. That's mm-hmm. very, I, I, oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any contention about that. But I'm thinking about someone who has like a change of heart or a change of view, change of belief. Does that change think their character as well? That's hard to say. Well, I mean, I, I do remember, I think I even have one here. It says, or the quote was, philosophical history is a large extent, uh, to, is to a large extent, a conflict of different dispositions rather than merely a, a, a different opinion. And this is the, like the idea of like different temperaments lead to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think that, I do think, it seems that temperament has some association with, uh, I guess, your philosophy or like how you view life. But I'm wondering, I mean, people have to have changed, right? Like, because people obviously change their philosophies. But I feel like your temperaments maybe it could change. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking like a really quick example. Like, if you're someone who has very little resources or opportunity in life and you are exposed to a lot of suffering early on, mm-hmm. you might become more nihilistic or have this view that life's inherently bad as opposed to someone who's birthed into a lot of opportunity and affluence and um, might have a more optimistic view about life mm-hmm. and then if their situations reverse yeah. or a person falls from grace or another person strikes riches, how, how does their view of the world change, you know? I think, I think, well, let's see. I think the question, I like what you're saying, was it like, well, like you said, to me it seems obvious that yeah. someone's temperament, like the direction goes from temperament to philosophy, their yeah. personal beliefs. But the question is, is, is it like a dialectical relationship where it, does it go back from philosophy to temperament or does it go like temperament, philosophy, or experience and then back to philosophy yeah. and then to, and then <laughs> to uh, yeah they're just somersaulting down yeah. the <laughs> well, well and you know wait um, where does he say that he says um, there's this quote um, oh man he, he says it's like from action to I think we'll get to it once we start going coming through yeah. the thing but I have a difficult time with that I had a long conversation with my dad when talking about this okay okay so the question is, is say, so someone, it, they're ex, they have the philosophy that they do, do in part to their temperament and also their experiences. Um, and then there's some dramatic change in their life and that alters their philosophy. Well, to me, that makes sense, right? Because a dramatic change in your life becomes a new experience you have to account for. Yeah. And I, I don't know if someone can adopt a belief without previously having a change in temperament. It's hard for me to think of a, a, an actual change of belief preceding the change in temperament that precipitate, that would theoretically precipitate. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost like a one-way connection for me. Where, mm-hmm. like, because if you don't have the, if you don't have the appropriate temperament to form a belief, 
a belief that would be connected to the temperament, yeah. then I don't see you ever having that belief. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, and then it, in like an inverse way, affecting your temperament. Yeah. Although I, the, the question was about character. I think beliefs, well, ca- character is what we call people's behavior over time, and beliefs. I think James says this explicitly in the quote that I'm going to find right. eventually. Beliefs determine behavior. Yeah. Uh, so yes, they would determine character as well. What What do you think is the difference between temperament and character? See, I think that's a good question because what I was thinking is that maybe your temperament and your like philosophical outlook are like one and the same. Well, the philosophical outlook would be like a, an articulate, it's, it's like a, like, I think what he means, my understanding of what he means by temperament, mm-hmm. I think of it, I think a good example would be like what you would, what your scores would be on like the big five personality test, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. ocean, it's like how open you are to new experiences, mm-hmm. how conscientious or yeah. like organized you are, how extroverted or introverted, how agreeable and how neurotic. Mm-hmm. I think those those your psychological profile and those those scores are from what I know stay consistent over time. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have a just dramatic change in your in that in those things. Mm-hmm. But how and I think that's different from character because I think what we mean when we say character is moral. Yeah. And that means it's contextualized in experience, which is different than temperament. Temperament's something that I think your temperament is part of your kind of I Think of it as like a psychological profile, and it kind of forms your per- the perceptual structures through which you mm. like filter your experience. Yeah, yeah, and then experience plus those structures equals your character, at least as you perceive it. Character is a difficult thing because how you would might think of your character might differ from how Ron thinks of your character, or yeah. whatever. But yeah, I think of temperament as more like, I think he's thinking of it as kind of like a cognitive, structural, yeah. emotional, or like a psychological profile type thing. Like, yeah. oh, he's super extroverted. I would say he's an extroverted temperament or something like that. And that's mm-hmm. not something chosen or yeah. something that is like, has any content. It's just the way that it is. The, the content is just how it manifests, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for some reason when I first like read it, I was thinking... I think of temperament, it seems very fleeting. Like, my initial reaction is not like this, like this static, innate characteristic. But I think it makes more sense to understand it the way you're describing it. I see that it definitely seems closely connected to character, though. Or, or like, it, it, I don't know. I, I think, when I think of character, I, I definitely think of it in terms of moral terms rather than. I, I, I might say that person is very extroverted, but I don't know if I. I might call that a character trait. Mm-hmm. But when I think of character yeah. as the thing of character I'm usually thinking of honest mm-hmm. or selfish mm-hmm. and those things I don't think are inter- inextricably connected to temperament yeah like you can be really introverted and be selfish or vice versa you can be extroverted and be selfish yeah um, sure like when I think of you Micah I think of someone who's like you're reticent you're like thoughtful and then and then introverted a little bit but also sociable and those would be things that i would describe like i don't think those are things that you choose like mm-hmm. there's no will in that I don't yeah think. well 
So, so if temperament is this lens we process um, experience through, right? So, would it be fair to say that if you experience something that's like dissonant with that uh, that lens, then you change your temperament? Is that is that how you view it? Because of that like connection. So Wait, then, what? So you have a temperament, right? Mm-hmm. And you that temperament determines how you like process the experience you live through. And say you had a traumatic experience. And that that's like, you know, it's traumatic. So it's dissonant from what your temperament is, mm-hmm. or like how it meshes with uh, that lens, yeah. I guess. Is that well, but the but the lens is not I think there's the lens is just like a sheet of glass. Think of it like that. So okay. And I don't think that I, I don't think you can get out of your head. This is something I really this is why I'm drawn to Cognitive in part. Because I like how it's very yeah, it's like contextualized within our psychology. Yeah. Because you cannot get out of your head, right. no matter what. Yeah. I think maybe like a traumatic event might change someone's temperament. I don't know if that I don't know like what the literature is psychologically if like if but it seems likely that in certain very extreme circumstances people's actual personality, which I think is temperament personality, yeah, it can change from those kinds of experiences and and then therefore how they perceive the world might change. But all of this would be unconscious. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of it would have to do like maybe it could be made somewhat conscious in like therapy sessions or if you're like yeah. maybe I don't know but for the most part I think it's just an unconscious thing yeah yeah I was thinking of like an example for that it might be like someone who is very outgoing mm-hmm. but for whatever reason they're in a culture like maybe they're a woman in a place where they're not supposed to speak up mm-hmm. so they get shamed for like speaking their mind or speaking out and like, you're supposed to be quiet you're supposed to be this you're supposed to be reserved um, so they might be like, like compressing that part of themselves, mm-hmm. and like I wonder how that would change their mm-hmm. uh, philosophy. I guess you know. Yeah. But it seems kind of rabbit trap. But that's, that's kind of how I was going. Yeah, yeah. Question. He first, so yeah, I think in page, and for me, it's page eight when he first. I think Ram, your quote was like his main thesis, the history of philosophy is to a great extent that of certain clash of human temperaments. Mm-hmm. So, so y'all both, so he talks about the tender, he calls them the tender-minded people, which to me sounds a little, maybe it's just because I tend to be tough-minded, but to call someone tender-minded seems a bit, I wish he had come up with different ways to describe the two groups that had, were a little less, uh, I don't know, charged, I guess. Because, yeah. like, to call it to say, oh, that's the tender-minded group, and then, oh, that's the tough-minded group. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it seems kind of biased. Yeah. With, to me, I read the tender-minded, rationalistic, intelli- intellectualistic, idealistic, optimistic, religious, free-willist, monistic, and dogmatical. I see, like, my dad. <laughs> you know, or, or people... I think Mario would fit in this group. People who are, like... Maybe, like traditionally religious, maybe, like, Southern Baptist people, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely fit in that tender-minded category. 
you feel you yeah and of course everyone has a mix but yeah I see myself I don't know I you know I love to think of myself as always somehow in between two things <laughs> but I do see myself more towards the tough minded just be, due to the pluralistic uh, pessimistic mm-hmm. I see myself more on those than although I am kind of free willist and I don't know what he means by well I do know but I forgot about what he means by uh, like rationalistic versus empiricist he means so I think what he says is the empiricists are people who reject absolute uh, the existence of absolute principles, philosophical principles, or like abstractions, like oh, like it is just like I think it has to do with your metaphysics. Right, like, right. So I think it was the your so um, rationalists are like they work from the mind out, like it's a world full of minds top down. Yeah, and then empiricists are, I guess, from the world out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Did you read that? Was that a quote? Yeah. Because I feel like he said something very similar to that. He says, um, "You recognize these contrasts as familiar in philosophy. Um, we have a very similar expressed in pairs of terms: rationalist and empiricist. Empiricist meaning your lover of facts in all of their crude variety, and rationalist meaning your devotee to abstract and eternal principles." So religious people, I think, or people who believe in God in it as a, like, I don't know, maybe kind of having an absolutist or a literalist view of God would be someone who would be a rationalist. Uh, And then maybe an empiricist would be someone who's, like he says, more materialistic, more like, oh, those are just ideas that you have in your head, and we don't know what, what, what is actually true in some kind of external sense, maybe... I don't know, he, I, he, he makes, and I like how he makes a lot of caveats. He's like, hey, this like giant distinction is like crude. And oh, yeah, just to give an example of how temperaments affect the. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm not mistaken, this is like a legitimate lecture, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, these are all lectures. Yeah, I was thinking, like, I wonder what it would be like to be still, like sitting down and listening to this and like, spoken to you. I think I would be unable to follow what yeah. he was saying. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely had to pause several times and just think about it for a minute and digest. Well, and plus, dude, I was thrown off by it. He uses a lot of, like, Latin phrases, like, that oh. I've never known before. Yeah. So, like, every <laughs> now and then he'll just throw something in and I'm like, what? Yeah, I had to, like, I had to make a little bookmark in the back because, like, I think the Latin phrases are, like, translated. Oh, yeah, I have one, too, for the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, because whenever he does use Latin phrases, I think it's a reference He also says uh, the rationalist will usually be in favor of what is called free will, and the empiricist will be a fatalist. Mm, yeah. The rationalist will finally be of dogmatic temper in his affirmations, while the empiricist may be more skeptical and open to discussion. Um, partially, you know, James thinks of himself as primarily an, an empiricist, so it's hard not to see... Well, he is a pluralist, for sure, mm-hmm. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, think, I think that would be... What's the antithesis of a pluralist? A, uh... Um, I think it would be like the... What's the difference? 
there's some what's the term that someone who's not a plural well it's like I think a pluralist would be you are accepting or seeing the truth in a multitude of different worldviews whereas if you're monistic I think that would be the other thing mm-hmm. then you see only one source of truth okay. so someone who's like a, a monist well is how I think of it like when I think of pluralist is like oh, okay you have your experience but you're cognizant that what you view as factual might not be factual for someone else's experience right um I think it's speaking a little more broadly, though. I think it like I think that might be in the sense of like like ideas itself, or yeah, pluralistic yeah, yeah. in terms of like systems of ideas. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think that would, that goes along with it, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. Let's see what I had some notes here on Hammer. Oh yeah, he has this one line where he's talking about. So he's he starts off, and I love this, just like praising philosophy. Yeah, he's like philosophy is yeah. the shit. Yeah. We all love our philosophy, and he talks. About, I like it how he talks about like even if it. I don't know if he says this, but like you're in a bar and it comes up. He says that people uh, there's a curious fascination in hearing deep things talked about, and then I love this line. He says, "We get the problematic thrill." we feel the presence of the vastness. Yeah. I, that just, it really, like, whenever there's, like, big ideas talked about, mm-hmm. that just... Yeah, you can, like, feel the weight in the room, like, everyone's quiet, and, like, ears perked up, and, you know... And you're talking about things up, that yeah. are, like, infinite, of yeah. it, like, ooh, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that he begins off with saying, like, the mo like, he quotes, uh, what was it, Mr. Chester Stone? Um, yeah, and he, he's like, the most important thing you can know about a person is their philosophy. So like, and he like agrees with them, right? And it's like, he's like, I mean, that that is somewhat interesting. Like how you view the world is like going to determine like your relation with them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, are you all familiar with Chesterton at all? No, I'm not. I, I know about him, but I don't read anything about um, him, which is sad. Are you, are you familiar with C.S. Lewis? He wrote mm-hmm. yeah, like, yeah. New Christianity, a bunch of other Christian books. Chesterton is kind of like a counterpart to C.S. Lewis. He wrote oh. two really important books, Orthodoxy and I think Heretics or Heresy. Where was book? He quoted one of the books in his introduction. Um, and they're uh, the Christian hmm. apologist as well. About the same, the same time frame as Lewis, or thought a little later, I think. Okay. I was I was wondering about so was Lewis around at the time, of or was he after? So James died in the early nineteen ten. I think. Yeah, Lewis died. was after. <laughs> after Lewis right. was like mid nineteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, so he, much he was like sometime like nineteen. 19- 20 to like 80 or something I don't know like his life was in there somewhere <laughs> okay that's kind of what I was you know James has like a he's really sympathetic for with the theology and theologians and religion it mm-hmm. would have been interesting if Lewis had been around what he and James would have talked about yeah yeah interesting well, okay oh yeah I was gonna, I had this question how do you guys 
I've been thinking about myself. Oh, because I've been doing this project. Did I tell you about this project? Did I, do you know Michael Shermer? The guy who Yes, I remember you said you were going to start interviewing him. Yeah, I literally have like had two FaceTime conversations with him, Ooh. which is pretty cool, with my professors working on this thing. FaceTime being like the FaceTime on the iPhone? Yeah, on the iPhone. Oh, yeah, because okay. he lives in California, I think. Okay. Um, but uh, for this project that we're working on, um, I've had to think about like what sets apart people who are like, the intellectual dark web people, you know, like that yeah. they call themselves, or they, I don't think any of them really like the term that much. Yeah, it seems like so, it's the word, um, like full of yourself. Like, it's, if you have yeah. intellectual in the name. Like, <laughs> and dark web, it's like yeah. we're smart and edgy. We're like, yeah. we're punks. We're, the, we're smart punks who are like better than you all. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but uh, I was thinking about like, why am I drawn to the people who... I like people who criticize everyone else. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they're like, hey, there's the left and then there's the right and they're both wrong. Yeah. And they both suck. I like that. And I think it might be because... The, well, I was thinking about why am I attracted to that kind of thinking? And I see this in my ideas, too. I, I always like to be against the grain. I have this, like... Aliona makes fun of me for it, actually. Like, I have this, like, tendency to like avoid being one in a crowd or like being I like to be the guy who can't be categorized you know (laughs) and and I think I actually have this at like some kind of fundamental level of like this need for to be idiosyncratic Uh where and I think that actually affects my thinking like um well I mean I think I mean I have that same kind of tendency Uh, (laughs) like I was telling you earlier it's like no just even for fun, like with, with Navia, my girlfriend, um, I like like to, it's fun taking just the opposition, right? Like being the devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, to me, it seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm drawn to the dark web or intellectual dark web too, uh, but it, it seems like for me, it's like the, the emphasis on like nuance. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's mm-hmm. it's attractive to be like not one side has it right, right? Like, and yeah. that seems to be my liking towards that. Yeah, it seems like that would be more true. Like it was yeah. it just yeah. Given two people who are both biased, the truth is likely to be not fully encapsulated in one person or the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the other thing is in general, it's just so much easier to to tear down than to build up. Mm-hmm. So like to see the problems in someone's structure rather than to build in something new, mm-hmm. um, just with anything broadly speaking. Which is my contention a little bit with the phrase "who's to say," because it's like someone's like putting forward something and it's like, well, who are you to say that? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. There's that's that needs to be said. I think sometimes, mm-hmm. but I also think that the people saying it, they're not offering anything. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that and it and that I went through a period where I was just like, it's really easy to think that everything is subjective and no one knows. Yeah, but you have to, you still think those things for some reason, right. and you people, you have to analyze what are those reasons that you think no one can say that. Yeah. and often you'll find that you're saying yeah just as much as everyone else. Ultimately, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, it's hard to be like a. 
extreme skeptic today. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like it's it's easy in the sense to ask the questions and to like right, probe, right. but it's hard to like have that be your firm ground to stand on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not genuine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more of like a a, a self defense mechanism more than. Yeah. I think so too, and you and oftentimes people say it to things that they disagree with, right. but when it, when they agree, then it's like th- this is to be said. <laughs> <laughs> this is to yeah. say yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Because, uh, I, I I've I've had this like little um, you know exploration of more conservative groups, um, and I do this through like meetup, which. Uh, do you know what Meetup is? Uh, it's an app or yeah, yeah, website, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. I've used it to play soccer. <laughs> oh, really? I moved to a new city and I was like, I want to find people to play soccer. Nice. I think it's like, it was Meetup or something of the same name or something. I don't remember. Yeah, and I, I use that to find like more political leaning organizations. That's really cool. I don't think, yeah, I mean, you could do that. Yeah, and so like when, when I go towards like these, these, these people, and uh, I mean, I see myself doing this too. Uh, when there's like <laughs> a room full of people where like they know that they're like in the majority, uh, they they tend to be like so much more like affirmative, mm-hmm. right? And I tend to be like, oh, well, yeah, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. Not being like, I think you're wrong, right? Mm-hmm. More being more agreeable. Whereas like when I go into like people with more liberal views, I mean. I can talk more affirmatively mm-hmm. as if, uh, but that would change when there's like, say like those two groups tend to come together. I wonder, like, obviously I'm going to change right, because of that. Yeah. Oh, like who, your beliefs? Yeah. My, my, my tone and my assertions mm. are definitely different in, in different, in different crowds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's why I'm trying to do this is to like, be more consistent with myself mm-hmm. uh, and in liberal groups have a sense of nuance and in more conservative groups have a tendency to speak up more in, in productive ways in both scenarios yeah so um, I have this yeah. Yeah. theory that I've been struggling I don't know I can't articulate it super well but I've just been thinking about this like I met this lady at, this is when I was going to to do the free class, CrossFit class with Nathan on Saturdays <laughs> and Jeanette. And I would go and it was brutal. But apparently most of the people there, I just found this out when I was talking to Kyle. He said that most of the people who go to this particular CrossFit, um, uh, are they all go to this church called Watermark. You know Watermark, like the mega church in Dallas. It's like huge. Oh, cool. They have this thing called like the porch, which is like for college students or something on Thursday nights or something. Anyways, you're in the middle of Oh, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> it, it feels super Christian in there. Like, you, you ever walk into someone, you're like, these people worship God. I don't know. <laughs> They're just, they felt so, like, middle-class, white Christian people. But anyways, one day, it, this really impacted me because there was this lady, and uh, she was talking about, she was, like, asking me what my home church was, and that was the first time I'd heard that phrase. And I think it's a good phrase because it, like, it probes... Like, do you go to church? But it also implicitly asks the unaskable question of, like, are you a Christian? And if you say, I don't have a home church, then it's like, it's probably not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, I thought, it, it's just a good way to put it. I thought it was a nice way to put it. 
Anyways, well, somehow she started talking about her life story. She seemed like someone who would like transition into her life story pretty fast <laughs> because she did. Yeah. And it was a complete stranger, right? Yeah. She said that she had been like addicted to drugs and it was just, she was like in this horrible place in life. And then she went to Watermark's 12 step rehab program, which is like this, I guess, religiously. Most of them are, you know, like NA and AA, they have yeah. a religious component. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not terribly different from those other programs uh, at Watermark. And, and then through that, she became a Christian and now she goes to Watermark. And mm-hmm. I probably was invited to that CrossFit Richardson thing through Watermark people, that's my guess. Yeah. Um, and I remember feeling just completely like it, I found myself fully concluding that I would have been way more surprised if she had not become a Christian but had gotten over her drug addiction through this program at Watermark. Like, it seemed almost inevitable that going from a place of drug addiction to sobriety through this channel that had a religious tone to it and within a community of people that she found incredibly supportive and loving, Yes. who believed this thing. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. you know? And, but, but, but what, what I've been thinking about from that is that there's, there's some kind of way in which the people around us mm-hmm. are what we believe. Mm-hmm. And Durkheim thought this to some extent. I, I haven't read enough Durkheim to fully, like, connect these two things but mm-hmm. I think it is because it does come from kind of like a sociological determinism where like if you are if you enter into a group and what you care about are those people and what they think and being a part of that group mm-hmm. then you adopt their beliefs mm-hmm. and it's not like a, and it's not like a, an explicit thing of like oh I'm going to adopt their beliefs to fit in right. it's you're, you're, you're even un consciously mimicking them yeah, and yeah. unconsciously mirroring them yeah. mirroring and, and so it's just a natural progression mm-hmm. um, and, and then it's almost like they're the same thing yeah. the people who mm-hmm. form the group and the beliefs themselves it's the same right 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 mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I do know I do have some psychology education in that uh, introduction to psychology <laughs> so, at UNT or? at KU so okay. uh, let's <laughs> oh University of Kansas. I, I went there my first year, and I went to UNT. Oh, cool. So, um, <laughs> uh, there, I did learn about the, the tendency for people's even indirect beliefs to not only affect the people around them, but affect the people that they know as mm-hmm. well. So it's like this kind of like, uh, if you think of like a, a spider web, if you're one node, um, even like if you shake, like if you press that node, it tends to like you know wave out. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I do believe in that. What the power that? of sex, right? With you can. There's a social web of. What's people. the name of that? There's some. I watched a short YouTube video. Uh, it's like some. The, the protein effect. What? Oh, uh, that's probably. It, it had some longer. I think it was named after a stupid. But it was a, the example they gave was like there's a basketball coach, a high school basketball coach, and he makes he prejudges the new team coming in, like the, the new students who are going to be part of the team, and he prejudges how good they'll be at basketball based on like 
probably like statistically likely characteristics like oh he's tall and fit he's probably really mm-hmm. good at basketball or he's mm-hmm. short you might not be so great right but maybe maybe those things aren't true maybe mm-hmm. if you were to like do a blind test uh, somehow of basketball skills he would determine one was the other one was better yeah but his bias goes into once they start playing once the the guy he thought was good makes the score he's like yeah i was right about this guy come on and then once he you know the, the other thing happens he's like i I knew he sucked. And then the guy who he didn't like, he starts not feeling as included in the team. And then he's, oh. and then, and then he tells his parents. And so it is so clear, like some, just a belief that has no, maybe no, uh, with the correspondence with reality actually affects future reality in yeah. tangible ways. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's I forget who said it in like philosophy, but I mean, I'm, my extent of philosophy knowledge is from Crash Course. Um, so <laughs> really bad. That's a, they're pretty good. I, think. I love them. I mean, for I'm like an overview. Huge, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan, but by no means am I well read. But uh, neither are we. So yeah. <laughs> we're all, that's why we're here. We're learning. Yeah, we're learning. <laughs> yeah that's true. Uh, but someone believed that, like, you're even if you don't speak up, you're responsible for your beliefs, right? And I thought that was like so attractive because it's like, like you you should. I mean, of course, I have a bias. I, I tend towards these subjects. I want to be invested, so I want other people to like think about them too. But I mean, I don't know. I, I think the, the how I learned about in psychology, maybe I'm wrong, was the power of sex. But it seems that it's definitely a, like an important thing. It's somewhat credible. Mm-hmm. I had this one note on on my yeah. on my version of page twelve, where uh, so he's talking about oh yeah so he's speaking to a crowd right and he's making some assumptions about who's in the crowd and it seems like he's saying hey most of you are uh, you know you know more about philosophy than the average person off the street you might not you're probably not mostly professional academic philosophers but you're interested in this and you're not happy with the options you're giving this option of like this super rationalist idea and you're like oh i I don't know about these ideas about like an absolute principles being true or about god being true and then you're also unhappy with the people who are like it's all not real and all that's real is like matter and molecules or whatever Mm -hmm. and then he's also talking about how the current environment has impacted their view of facts. And let's see, and where is this? He says, uh-huh. oh yeah, okay. Uh, but our esteem, so oh, keep in mind, this is in, uh, he gave these lectures in 1906, in 1907, okay? So this is over a century ago. That's wild. It's really, and it still feels so, well, and this is here's what he said: Our esteem for facts has not neutralized us in religiousness. And for by facts here, he means kind of a scientific conception of facts. He says it is almost itself religious. Our scientific temper is devout. Mm-hmm. And imagine how devout he would say people are today yeah. about that kind of thing. I think people have only gotten. This is over a century ago. We think we think like 
people were like smoking cigarettes and stuff, and now we're like, oh, they didn't they know? Like, th- there was so much happening that was like that was probably a bad example, but like where we would think that their science wasn't as advanced. Yeah. And yeah. today we have this greater devotion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I I do have some reference. So he uh, he when he was doing his MD. He went under Gasis, I think was the doctor's name, um, to a trip uh, to South America, I believe. Uh, because he, this was, I think, Darwin released his like evolutionary theory, but Agassiz was like really against it, really against it. So mm-hmm. he went down south to prove his uh, Ice Age theory, where uh, basically uh, he was looking for glacial, like, things down there uh, <laughs> uh, what's his name um, James quickly found out like like is like character and he like he hated going down there because of like of just like he hated like <laughs> like being uh, I guess an experimentalism gathering like research data mm. um, but he I mean I think like so Agassiz was really, really, like, stern on that way of thinking, because when Darwin came along, he was, like, obviously, like, from what the book said, it wasn't the fact that it was, like, an evolutionary theory, but it's, like, like it's a, I guess, implication that it, evolution happened, but it had no need, or, like, natural selection was the mechanism uh, of uh, how people were created or like people adapted and so uh, there was no need for like a divine entity mm. and so Jesus was like super against that and I mean wow it's a, there's a lot of he was like super racist uh, but it was uh, like how they spoke about it uh, obviously it's like such a clash to now but they were like super confident and this like and they took a scientific approach right so mm-hmm. they were like men of science and so super confident about yeah the, that there was their like, evolutionary theory of like oh the, the negro is like less than us uh, oh, intellectuals okay, okay. and they were backing it up through this like uh, evolutionary mean and or not evolutionary but uh, through scientific means but the interesting thing is is that like even the evolutionary crowd right had uh, there was like two prevailing theories of uh, evolution, and so even them they were like also racist, <laughs> like they were like justifying it, like the mean, like they had this worldview, and it doesn't matter how they uh, like w- what the, the substance was in between, they still got to that worldview at the end, mm-hmm. and so like in, in this like. I mean, he basically talks about scientism, right? Like in this. Yeah, yeah. he does. Yeah. So like it. Yeah, they they employed they employed those theories to prove a conclusion they already had of, that was racist. Right. Yeah. yeah, I hear that a lot when people are criticizing Christianity, mm-hmm. and they're like, because of course, like Christianity is a, a commandment against homosexuality, or not commandment, but a, you know, don't do that. Yeah. So a lot of people think that it's not like you become a Christian and then there's this 
command to not do that, they think, oh, I hate homosexuals. Oh, Christianity allows me to justify that belief. Oh, therefore, I'm a Christian kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like a backwards. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas some other people in the beginning be like, oh, I don't have any problem with this. But then I adopt these other beliefs and there's something that comes along with it. And yeah, yeah. It certainly seems like it depends on the person. Like, it seems likely that there are people, although I, I, this comes down to like who you call a Christian. Right? Yeah. You might just mm-hmm. go, they're not Christians. Mm-hmm. But it's people who would use Christianity to justify yeah. kind of moral notions they have. Or, yeah, or like, oh, I want to control women, and so I'm going to adopt this belief that says women must be subservient or something like that, you know? Yeah. Oh, I've been reading this uh, memoir by this lady who was in the Westboro Baptist Church, and what I thought was really interesting, I haven't finished it, but what I thought was really interesting was like, so so you know the Westboro Baptist Church is mostly one family, the Phelps family. It's, it's pretty much just them, and like the, the people they've, some they've found and married and stuff. But there's this other family called the Drains, and this lady, I'm totally blank, Lauren Drain, I think is her name. Uh, she wrote this book, and she so she's left. But her dad, he started out as like an atheist, and he was like, he was actually making a documentary about the Westboro Baptist Church that he was calling hate mongers, mm-hmm. and it was against them. And he was going to submit it to like film festivals, and it was going to be about how bad the Westboro Baptist Church was. And then he became totally indoctrinated. And came into the church. And so uh, eventually he even moved his family. He, he, you can actually look him up on YouTube. You can see him. He went on the Russell Brand show back when that was a oh, thing yeah. with other people. And like he, he, you can watch videos of this guy mm-hmm. um, on when protest he, When lines. Russell Brand like, brought out gay people, right? Yeah, he, yeah. There's this hilarious clip. I didn't know Russell Brand had a show. I just found this recently on, on YouTube. But Russell Brand had yeah. <laughs> Westboro Banish people on. And he goes all right, now I'm going to bring out the gays. And he just, like, <laughs> parades out these guys and is, like, not making them talk to each other. <laughs> um, and he's, like, pretending he's on both sides. Anyways. Um, okay, but what was so interesting was, so as Lauren, I'm pretty sure her name was Lauren, I can't like, uh, it, she was in high school, mm-hmm. the girl who's writing the book. And when she was in high school, that was when her dad started getting more and more kind of like fundamentalist, I guess, about Westboro Baptist Church theology. And he started controlling her more and more and more. And like being very moralistic about, and like really kind of being verbally abusive. And I don't use that, that phrase is overused, but I think it actually applied in this instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking about, you know, I bet all dads, all good dads, probably feel an anxiety and an understandable anxiety that I think comes from a place of responsibility about their daughter becoming a high school student, right? Like that she's hitting, she's, you know, hitting puberty. She's going to start dating. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that people start getting into in high school. Like, where is she? Like, and then there's, you worry, you're probably worried about your kids. Right. And this guy, he seemed pretty unstable. Her dad from the start, he had like Mm -hmm. bad relationships with his parents. He seemed kind of have, had a rough childhood, but I, I, I think he probably found a lot of solace in the theology because it gave him, it, it justified maybe his desire to control the fear that he had about where his daughter was and what she was getting into due to the ambiguity. Because mm-hmm. like the 
the ambiguity of where she is and what she's into comes from a lack of control. But if you control her entire life, there's no more ambiguity mm. about who she might be talking to at school or whatever. Mm. And you're, the fear is reduced. Yeah. Um, and all of that kind of coincided with his transition into the church. Um, and it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say because I think it's easy to do that kind of analysis, I think, a little bit if you have the whole story. Um, but if someone were to do that about us, we might feel offended. We might be like, no, I actually reasoned my way into that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It can go to, but it seems true, right? It, yeah. Like, looking it's at that guy. It's possible, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really interesting. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like, kind of circling back to what James is talking about, how, like, your, temp- your temperament mm-hmm. would inform your beliefs. And I think what we talked about in the last book a lot was, um, like what you want to be true. It's mm-hmm. like you decide that and then like, you find beliefs to back it up right. and, uh, towards the end after you've arrived at this conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is something that like, I think the more I've thought about it I think is true of most people in most situations and, my, and myself even. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, like, yeah, I like to think I made this reasonable decision and like walked through this rational process but in the end I think it's like I believe what I want to believe and then you know found some it's I arrived at that and then it's more of the sense of like okay am I completely crazy for believing this what are the defeaters to use a philosophical word and then and then maybe found some good supporting arguments and then rolled with it you know does that with the thing I think about that sometimes and what how it affects me sometimes is I'm like doesn't matter what I end up thinking so I might as well but that's not the right way to do it right because there's something to the method how you get there like it there's something about you can you can look at your original place the method you took and your conclusion mm-hmm. and you could derive oh well you know my what I wanted ultimately played a role there mm-hmm. but there are still different ways there's still different forms the methodology can take yeah. the methodology the methods of I'm just going to choose what I want to be true because Ultimately, that'll be the case anyway. And what's true, those are two very different methods. And it seems like even though you could classify the results in both situations as being the things that you arrive at because you wanted something to be the case, it's still, you'll still get to different conclusions. So it's kind of like a weird, because sometimes, you know, honestly, Elio's in the other room, but maybe she's not paying attention. But sometimes she's like talking to me about. Like, someone, a friend that she has will do something, and it'll be frustrating to her. And I could see why it could be frustrating, but then I could also see, to- like, how it could be explained in ways that would be totally understandable or, like, even sympathetic. And it's funny, because, like, in those moments, to me, like, the truth, and this, I think, is how it's felt, but the truth so totally doesn't matter. <laughs> or yeah. I'm like screw them yeah. <laughs> like they 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 wronged you you know mm, or yeah. or you know it, it very and and the thing is is like that's when it's most clear but I think it might be like that the, a lot of the times for us about deeper issues too yeah yeah I mean it's like not even just like deciding a life philosophy or like your whole outlook on life but you know just like little 
like day-to-day things like sometimes you just want to enter into the emotion the feeling the moment like what you're yeah what you're feeling and then kind of like discern it you know later or like wrap your mind around all the logical like what happens later you know yeah i, I think that's like just a human experience so. well i think so because like you you just can't you kind of have to have selective attention a little bit like if yeah. you were entertaining you we, you know what we kind of need a bias to get anywhere yeah. Like otherwise, where would we go? Right, it would really be completely lost, and right. and not even nihilistic. We would we wouldn't even get to nihilism. I don't think if we didn't have. That's I mean that's a good question. What would a completely impersonal being who had no biases or desires or end goals think well, about the world? I don't. They probably. I don't even. I can't. Uh, they can't think anything, right? Yeah. So like, if you follow that, like if you're like. Oh, if you're like, I have thought about this so much because there's like the sense of like understanding and action, right? Because with a lot of like political views, I'm like, oh, okay, this is like, like this, I'm trying to like contextualize it. I'm like, okay, we have this difference in opinion. They have their experience and I have mine and I have to understand like, okay, they're there because if I were in their shoes, I've lived their life definitely come to the beliefs they have is something I, I think right well if you if you yeah. were them then you would think what they thought exactly because you would be them that's what that's my point right, right? <laughs> and so and so that's interesting yeah I, I know that, that's, you, a, that's a pretty big premise you wouldn't be you like right you would be say, that if people said if I lived their entire life the way they live, <laughs> I would think what they thought. It's like, right, the, but are you sure? Really? <laughs> but see, that, that's the thing. It's a, that's the kind of like extreme understanding, which is like completely pointless to action, right? Like, what, what do you do with that understanding? Is where, like, what I'm trying to work through. Yeah. It's like, you have this like radical empathy, right? Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's, at a certain point, you have to be like, there's still a difference. And there's still like, some action of convincing that they have to do to me or vice versa. All right. And so, yeah. Well, that's I struggle with that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's humbling a little bit to, to, to think, focus on that for a while. But also, I agree where beliefs would be totally meaningless if you didn't stand by them ultimately. Like, yeah. It, they, would, they, would be, they wouldn't do what they do if you were like, Eh. like I just came to this because of my experience it, and said that phrase as though it was like just my experience you know? right right mm-hmm. okay so I'm for me page 25 which let's see so for that's oh wait I'm slipping into the second lecture are we good with the first um, first lecture let me look through Oh, yeah, I had oh. This. oh, go ahead, bro. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it is funny that he talks about philosophy, but he talks about, like, <laughs> like actual philosophy in such a derogatory way. <laughs> like, there's this one quote. He's like, the, the world to which your philosophy professor introduces you to is simple, clean, and noble. Mm. The contradictions of real life are absent from it. Mm. And he's like... And it's so funny because... Uh, uh, from what I gained, what I 
have absorbed from this is that it seems like he's like super against these like abstractions, like these like like mm-hmm. uh, high level thinking, and it, from what, what it seems like uh, from the context uh, of their time, like the Civil War was so like it, it made them disillusioned, and so it seems like they they placed these like abstraction rules specifically the abolitionists uh, at a at a cost of like was it worth it to have those like abstractions and lead to death mm. right uh, oh i see interesting yeah mm. so I, i'm mm. yeah. because like, they're putting like ideas before people yeah yeah so that's really interesting this made me think a lot about um one thing you talked about with the previous book was character development, like how do we achieve it? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, in philosophy, one of the, the key themes is what is the good life? Or what does it mean to be a good person? Right. And practically speaking, that was one of the criticisms of, of the previous author was writing, it seems like James was too, like with the example of the student, you come into philosophy class mm-hmm. and you talk about this stuff and you, you leave and you enter the real world and then that thing applies. Yeah. The same thing with an ethics department. You go in, you have an ethics of engineering or ethics of, you know, science class. And then you go home and, okay, am I going to make this utilitarian decision about whether, <laughs> how I should treat my family? You right, know, right. It's like, no, <laughs> you're going to do like what you what you were taught by your family and by society and right. your like, um, place of worship and all that stuff. And, and uh, so, yeah, it really made me think about mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, component. Of I, I don't know. I, I forget where it was from. Um, oh man, I'm forgetting the quote. Uh, but it's like I, I forget if it was like Jordan Peterson or Jonathan Knight. It was some video I was watching, and they're like, "Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> like your philosophy professor is not going to be more moral than like anyone else. Like it's mm. found. Like we know that statistically. They, they'd actually perform true studies to see if uh, ethicists. <laughs> Are more ethical, and they're not. <laughs> they're not. Exactly. You can actually look up studies. It's true. <laughs> they're just they're just people, you know. They're, right, they're right. just people, of course, uh, of course. And that's so funny, though. It's like, well, I mean, that's it's really especially relevant with like thinking about the Catholic Church and the amount of heat mm-hmm. that the priests are getting because of the pedophilia that's coming out. Mm-hmm. And then I've heard that I went. I remember, like, what, I, it was like a week after one of. Um, the cases was revealed and uh, it's in New York or something. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia, I think. Okay. Um, but I went to a, a mass with one of my friends and they gave a little short, one of the pastors there gave a short, uh, pastors, priests, gave a short uh, speech about it. And like one of the things, he was pretty ticked off about the whole situation, obviously. But um, one of the things he emphasized over and over again was like, statistically speaking, like this is much less common in the church than it is society at large or where they're just getting a lot of heat for it which i thought that's interesting because like even if that's the case like you shouldn't do that at all obviously mm-hmm. but well yeah. and also i think it there's a there's, it's more surprise like i think it would be very it, it's it would be very surprising if ethicists like moral philosophers were found to be less moral according to whatever metrics they were using than the average person <laughs> and that's kind of like with the priests where 
Although I guess, well, in a, it's a weird to say like, on average in society, the the ratio of non pedophiles to pedophiles is x to y. Yeah. But in the Catholic Church, among priests who have positions of power, over like they and they're trained and they're supposedly, I think it just it so rocks the boat because we don't have when we think about the statistics of average people. We're not, we don't have any, I don't know, we're not having pre-judgments about what these people are that much, I don't think. We're just hoping that they're not pedophiles or like, yeah, yeah. that they go to work or whatever, like, normal stuff. Yeah. But, but with the priests, it's, like, they're it's good people. people. Yeah. And that's why it's, like, really surprising. Yeah. Yeah, they have, like, a part of their job to be a moral example. And I think right. power plays a role. Like, when, when the, the average person... I don't think we, we don't know enough about, well, duh, because the average person to have any, they have power, they probably don't have, the average person probably doesn't have as much power over other people directly mm-hmm. yeah. as priests do over altar boys or whoever they're mm-hmm. seeing. There's a power dynamic there mm-hmm. that I think makes it even worse. Well, yeah, makes it, for me, particularly speaking for myself, yeah. totally changes the game. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to do like a study comparison of like, like equal or re- like relatively equal power dynamics, like in government officials, right? Mm. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know what kind of abuse of power they might do that might be immoral. Right? If I'm trying to take the other side, though, mm. I feel kind of defensive to some extent about police officers a little bit, just because mm. the is the instances of police brutality that we know of, and we have to go off of what we know. I don't buy the arguments that are like there is all of this all of these cases that we don't know about. It's like, sure, there's probably a few, but you can't, we don't know, mm-hmm. right? It's very rare. It's extraordinarily rare that that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's also rare that it's disproportionately affecting African-Americans. There are all kinds of cases against uh, people who are white, too. Um, but the thing that gets me is, is like, well, you, you can't make statements about the entire population, right? Like, that's just yeah. not the case. And um, I'm, I think you know, crime among police officers is probably lower than crime rates in among average people because they're police officers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and that would be to expect to be expected, and it's to be expected among priests. Then. Yeah. But For sure. Yeah. So I guess that you know, like, what, what do we want? Zero pedophiles? I don't know if we're gonna get. I don't know. It's hard for me to. <laughs> now that I'm saying it, it doesn't stop. It's not. Uh, <laughs> I don't feel comforted by what I'm saying at all. It doesn't. I mean, it's actually really not compelling. Yeah. <laughs> what do we want? Just like good people. Yeah. What do you, what do you asking? Gosh, we want no one to, to to rape kids. Come on, guys. Unreal. Get some realistic expectations. <laughs> oh man. Um, one thing I liked that that he did in this first lecture is, gosh, like he he referenced this guy who, like, made these what seems to be very anti-religious pamphlet. It's like a short book, I think, or an essay mm-hmm. where he included um, stories from newspapers. And one of them was this one about this guy, John Corcoran or something, who, like, so he lost his job because he was sick mm-hmm. and he was, like, weak. And then when he was trying to find a new job, he ran out of all of his savings because he didn't have much savings to begin with. And then when he finally got a job, what is it? Shoveling, shoveling something. Shoveling coal, I think. Shoveling. Or, sh- or snow. 
Was was some? Oh yeah, snow shovelers. Snow shovelers, yeah. So he was too. He did it for an hour. So this new job, this new hope, and then he couldn't do it because he was too weak from his sickness, and he can't help being sick, presumably. And so he quits. He had he can't do that job, and he goes home and he sees this notice of dispossession on his door, and his wife and kids like don't have food, and he just kills himself, um, because he just can't deal with it. Yeah. And I think and he gives this example and then another example, and I think James's point in including these stories is like, hey, this is this is real life. Like mm-hmm. things like this happen, yeah. and it's not, and it, and you can't just he. he really shits on Leibniz. Uh, yeah. Where he's like, you, you can't just explain this away by saying, uh, you know, maybe all the pain in life is is outweighed by all the happiness that other beings are having in other corners of the universe. Mm-hmm. Like, if you tell this guy that, he's going to be like, you, like, my experience is way more real than this rhetorical move that you're pulling here mm-hmm. and you're not contending with the reality of, of my experience at all right. and the reality that you should be seeing based mm-hmm. off of my story right yeah. Yeah. and I I uh, so uh, uh, well, there's this one part that I highlighted I didn't I was unfamiliar with these names I don't know if you but Professor Royce and Bradley he mentions them as being um, within this community of thinkers and philosophers who Defend a kind of, um, it's for eighteen on our version. Um, what I guess if you're two pages behind, it's like sixteen. I guess. Um, he says so. This is right after he gives he he encourage he uh, includes this um, excerpt yeah. about John Corcoran or whatever. Mm-hmm. He says while professors Royce and Bradley and a whole host of guileless thorough-fed thinkers are unveiling reality and the absolute and explaining away evil and pain. This is the condition of the only beings known to us anywhere in the universe with the developed consciousness of what the universe is. So I think what he, he's saying is like you have these privileged philosophers, right? Like they're, they don't, they're not worried about finding jobs. Like they, they're sitting thinking, reading, they're, they're not like this poor guy who is just has the most understandably suicidal life. And they're saying, they're making statements about the justice in the universe mm-hmm. and about the absolute and stuff. And I think James like is super sympathetic with like the blue-collar lifestyle in yeah. your life and is saying, like, this doesn't work for people. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He says elsewhere that the, the philosophy that will... Um, that will abound, I guess, in the future is the one that makes the most sense to the people in the audience. He's like, that makes the most sense to you. Mm. Oh yeah, okay, here it is. The final victorious way of looking at things, so he means of philosophy, will be the most completely impressive way to the normal run of minds. And because like, think about like strange unimpressive philosophies die with their developers. Mm-hmm. And the ones that live on are the ones that somehow um, inspire the common person or mm-hmm. that in fact that have like at least like some uh, diluted version of it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, yeah. that was a powerful excerpt. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Thought about that. Yeah, but I mean, it's essentially the problem with pain. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is the reality, like, therefore, there is no deity, and obviously, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. And I think, you know, I don't think that's to say that there's no, that, like, there is no good apologetic answer, or there's no theodicy worth contemplating that has some kind of abstract structure to it, because mm-hmm. all of them do. Like, if you if you ask the question... Why, why does God allow evil? That's such an abstract question. Your answer is going to be abstract. You can't give the answer in terms of what like yeah. what happens in the world. I don't know how that would work. Yeah. But I think his problem is with the attitude of people like Leibniz, mm-hmm. who are like so... And that, that. He includes a, an excerpt from Leibniz. Right. Yeah, and it seems like so dismissive. Mm-hmm. of these horrible experiences that people are having every day. It's just like that rhetorical thing, like completely... Yeah. It's like, it's dude, your, your life is like totally hell, but like there are people in other corners of the universe, theoretically, who may be really happy, and that offsets the pain that you're experiencing. Like, just the... the, the hubris. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Um... This isn't really super relevant, but I really enjoyed this paragraph. Uh, I it's like page 10. It was right up the next page after he listed the 10 rivers of tough minded. Okay, yeah, so that's, for me, it's just 11. Okay. Um, he says, uh, facts are good, of course. Give us lots of facts. Principles are good. Give us plenty of principles. The world is indubitably one, if you look at it in one way, but as indubitably as... It is many, if you look at another. It is both one and many. Let us adopt a sort of pluralistic monism. <laughs> Everything, of course, is necessarily determined. And yet, of course, our wills are free. A sort of free will determinism is the true philosophy. <laughs> oh, yeah. The evil of the parts is undeniable, but the whole can't be evil. So practical pessimism may be combined with metaphysical optimism, and so forth. Your ordinary philosophic layman, never being a radical, never straightening out his own system, but living vaguely in one possible compartment of it, or another to suit the temptations of successive hours. Mm. I was, like, I just thought I was like, that was really well written. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> the temptations of successive hours, like what a phrase. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing. Yeah, it's like it's not like. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, it's just the way it is, you know. He he he's so good at like. Capture like at, at explaining the thing so well. Like, without explicitly saying, like, he's not, he could have just said something like, we are, we are feeling contradicted, or like, we feel like it's contradicted, but no, he like, he lays it out of like, these things that we're grappling with, of like, mm-hmm. and it's so well done. Yeah. He's, he's definitely a very romantic speaker. Mm-hmm. I, I like how it, well, when we get to the second lecture, I like how he like, lists this long objection. And, like, all of these questions, he's like, you're probably thinking, why would I say this? And, like, and he goes on this long thing, like, I can't believe you would just say that. And it seems like he's, re- he's really being a passionate objector to his own. Yeah. Uh, and then he's like, I'll answer it in lecture six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang with me. Hang on to your boots. Yeah. We'll get in there. It's so funny. I mean, he, he is very, very, uh, like, realistic about his own speech, too. Like, there's, even in lecture one, he's like, he blatantly says, like, the picture I have given 
It is indeed monstrously oversimplified and rude. And then he goes into like why you should stick with it, right? Mm-hmm. So. On page twenty-five, this is when he starts this is lecture two. It's when he really starts explaining what he means by pragmatism and the pragmatic method. Mm. And uh, he says, if no practical difference whatever can be traced, then the alternatives mean practically the same thing and all dispute is idle. So a distinction without a difference is not worth making, I think is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really interesting is where he says this. Where is he? Oh yeah, so he references uh, Charles Pierce, mm-hmm. and he says to develop a thought's meaning. So the meaning of a thought, of an idea, we need only determine what conduct it is fitted to produce. That conduct is for us its sole significance. Later he says, to attain perfect clearness in our thoughts of an object then, we need only consider what conceivable effects of a practical kind the objects may involve, what sensations we are to expect from it, and what reactions we must prepare. What do you know? I mean, that is quite a claim. What do you all think about that? Man, I, I don't know. I know this is where it like, starts to get hard for me. Um, I mean, he's saying like, if, if your belief results in uh, positive change, then it's it's it is true, right? I mean that that's essentially what I, I it seems like he's then it's true. Trying to say. Like the, the 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 consequences of your belief is all that matters. Yeah, right? and they actually form. I think what he's saying is something can't even be true or not true if it doesn't make some kind of difference. It's yeah. not. It can't. It's not even a candidate. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, it seems yeah. like he wants to chip away at the the things that, like like you said, don't make any those distinctions. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, I think that's hard, though. <laughs> yeah, I, found, I find this very attractive and very helpful, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But one of my reservations about pragmatism is... At what point do you evaluate the consequences of a belief? Is it moment by moment? Is it hour by hour, week by week, year by year, lifetime by lifetime? You know, because some belief commitments take a lot to be flushed out. Like I'm just thinking about just working out. Okay, like you're not gonna see results until you do it for like a month at least. So, like, if we're trying to evaluate whether socialism is a better method of economic or a better economic theory than capitalism do we need to wait until one country tries it for a year or 10 countries try it for 15 years or you know until we can have an understanding of what is true and i don't understand a way to be able to start to answer that question you know i'm gonna pull a james okay. and say i think it i think maybe what he would say is that it, it depends on what you mean when you say socials or working out? I think is an easier example. Okay. So, what is your belief about the time frame, the relevant time frame that you should be considering when you're working out? 
and you might say a week, and then a week might go, go by, and you might realize, nope, that wasn't long enough. And I think it would depend on that. Or, but I think maybe what you're saying more is like some kind of moral statement or morally significant statement. Yeah, yeah. The, the examples of that are very testable. <laughs> but I'm thinking, yeah, like, so I just thought maybe we could say, um, okay, nonviolence versus uh, carry the bigger stick that speaks softly. Mm-hmm. Or speak softly but carry a big stick. Yeah, was that who, who, what country? Oh, wait, what country? Was I think Theodore. The, yeah, uh, Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt said that. Yeah. Said that. So, like, should we, or should I, as an individual, be capable of defending myself with firearms, or should I adopt a nonviolent perspective and has that be my way of life? You know, which is true, better for society, better for me, all those things. Well, from what I understand, it it seems that uh, pragmatism. There's like a quote that says. Like it's a corridor to which other philosoph- it leads to other philosophies. Yeah. So it seems that the crux of like James's pragmatism starts from your like own perspective of what's good, mm-hmm. and so that that has its like context, and so within your own framework, it, it leads to like what is is like practically good for you and good is what you would define it as so like when it comes to like uh, across individuals I don't know if like I don't I think that's where like pragmatism like doesn't hold like in the sense that I don't think like James even meant it to be like an interpersonal Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's not like a democratic pragmatism. No, no. Yeah. I, I think he meant he means it as like it's it's a. I mean, there's there's some uh, quote. I mean, I'll pull it up, but it's like it's a corridor to like different things and uh, different uh, philosophies. And it seems from that quote, it, like how I interpret it is like, uh, yeah, you, you have this experience, but if it if x philosophy works for you then that's the pragmatic view whereas like so for me it might be it might be like oh um you know being uh, in this like uh, non-religious framework might work uh for me whereas a religious framework might not in in my sense of good or whatever good i'm convinced of Mm. whereas someone else's sense of good or whatever uh, what's it called? Whatever uh, conception of good they have, it's better yeah. found through religious or whatever uh, metaphysical, spiritual means or non-spiritual means that they. I don't yeah. know. That's I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. That that's the the second thing I was curious about is like his emphasis on whether or not it works as if it's expedient or if it has yeah, yeah, cash yeah. value, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, is that for one person, that could be, okay, I, this belief has cash value if I am at peace in the world. I'm enjoying my life kind of mm, thing. Yeah. For another person, a belief might have cash value if it gives me a lot of, of meaning, something I can be proud of, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, or, you know, yeah, I think it might, like, vary from person to person. And, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think the brilliance of pragmatism is that I think he understands it varies from, from person to person. So, like, that's where it's, like, so appealing to such a broad base of people. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I like pragmatism in the sense that it's like, I mean, it's pragmatic, right? <laughs> in, the, in the essence of the word. Yeah. But I think, I mean, but I don't, I think the limitations of it are like, I don't think it's going to solve like capitalism versus socialism. You know I, what I mean? I think, well, it depends on what you mean by that. Like, mm. here's a quote. He, he says that, he says it, but he means pragmatism. Pragmatism agrees with nominalism for instance, in always appealing to particulars, with utilitarianism and emphasizing practical aspects, and with positivism and its disdain for verbal, verbal solutions, uh, useless questions and metaphysical abstractions. So when you say social, socialism versus uh, capitalism, mm -hmm. you have to mean it in, turn, in a specific context. Because mm -hmm. like, if we just said we just were like in the abstract these two systems which is better it, like it, and we weren't caring at all about instituting either one of these systems i think james would be like Come, go to bed <laughs> you know yeah but if, if we're like for the united states in 2019 is it more is it better for us to become more uh capitalistic or more socialistic yeah. and if for us to make that evaluation and to look to history right which in, in, in other countries now, like presumably this would be how we would determine what would be best for us. Mm -hmm. And we would kind of somehow, um, we would also consider the, the variables that are different yeah. for the United States than those other countries and so on. Mm -hmm. um, your time frame, I kind of think, in answering the question, kind of becomes self-evident mm -hmm. or self-defining. Right, right, right. Due to the fact that, that, you're, you, that, you're, um, that this assessment is instrumental to coming to a specific conclusion about mm. what is best in this particular case. Mm. But if you were just to think about it in the abstract of like which system is better, uh, I think James would say that's not really it's so the pragmatic question. method would be to to, to, yeah, to yeah. contextualize the question. Yeah, yeah. no. But uh, the, the thing is, is that where I think it, it, it seems to be difficult, like if you were to have even with the context, uh, it's I think like like the question of like what is good, right, is where it might break down uh, across individuals because what is good to you is like very straightforward. It's evident within the context. You can uh, you know put all these like you know variables parameters, and then you have you have your end result. Oh, you're like okay, I've come to the conclusion that. X is better than Y. Uh, but I feel like you might run through this with someone else, and uh, but they might be like, oh, but that's not the end goal that I want. The well, good is different. Well, mm -hmm. good. So uh, I can find the part where he says this, but mm -hmm. I think James, from what I understand, good is the same thing as true. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the question of what is good is to ask, what is true? Mm. Mm. And so there is no abstract, the good. Yeah. Good is a property of, of uh, things that can be done in pursuit of a goal. And, that, and the, what is and is not good 
is what is and is not expedient in your movement towards that goal. In the same way as what is and is not true is is what is better or worse at getting you closer to your goal. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's the same. Uh, he even says, he says like if you're thinking about the good life. Um, the life you want to live, then presumably information that is relevant to you living that life would be both true and good. You would want it to be true in the fact that it reveals how to go about living that life in an accurate way, yeah. uh, or in a true way. I use the definition. But it's also good because it's helping you live the good life. Mm-hmm. They're totally connected. Um, yeah. And, oh, because what our goals are are how we're evaluating the goodness of our life. And what we need to accomplish those goals needs to be reliable information. Mm-hmm. It needs to be expedient information. Mm-hmm. And there, that will be our basis of, of evaluating the truth value of it as well. Yeah. yeah that, that's really good. That... But does, does that still have, like... I mean... It seems like what's expedient for one person might be different for the other, right? No, I, totally. I, I think James is a is a is a relativist. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But that, I mean, but that's wrong. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with like his relativism through the like uh, where he like when he states like you have you have it's not that you like start out with these like abstract facts. And then you like put them into your experience. Rather, you're like viewing these these facts, so-called facts, through your experience. And so that's where like you know that's why he he goes through that like whole like oh we can have a um, <laughs> like a pluralistic monism right like this this idea that like what's what you've come to realization from your experience. Uh, might be different from someone else's. Uh, but doesn't that leave you with uh, to where I don't know how do you mesh between individuals? I don't think, I think what he's saying is not I don't think what he's I don't think he's deriving any conclusions mm-hmm. about what is true based off of the fact that different people with different experiences will come to different conclusions. I think, instead, what he's saying is that what is true is based off of your experience in these things. So, like, even if you're a... There, are there any true relativists? There might be a relativist... Okay, and this is... I'm kind of being a little tiny when I'm saying this, but, like, like you, you might think different people can have different opinions about what's good. But nonetheless, okay. you have an opinion about what's good. Right. You have one. Right. And you think that your opinion is right. Mm-hmm. And you can know that because people will become offended by things. Right, right. Right? And then they'll stand up for other people and themselves. Mm-hmm. And in those instances, they're living out their belief that they think that something is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, why do they think that? Right? Well, but how, like, you do stand up to that person, right? But what. I mean, like, so pragmatism is not, I mean, it's like this, it seems to me, it seems like it's a, it's a way of looking or a lens to the world uh, 
rather than like a philosophy to like settle between people, right? So like, yeah, he says it's a method. It has yeah, no content. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that is correct. Like, it's not an interpersonal thing. Though. Yeah. Well, because it, it's there. It, but I think by interpersonal, do you mean it makes no broad claims about what is true out in the world? Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Which out in the world would mean encompassing Multiple. humanity. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like yeah. your yeah. your perspective or your experience. And then the truth that you extract from it, and my experience, and the truth I extract from it, it pragmatism holds no like no function in like determining this this higher like whatever yeah. truth truth is. No arbit- yeah, yeah. arbitration between the two. Right, right, right. Yeah. You you well, what I like about it is, like I said earlier, you can't get out of your head. Re- what you call reality is contextualized within, so to speak, your head. Mm-hmm. And no matter what I tell you, uh, you mm-hmm. will ultimately understand what is true in your own head. Yeah. And I think James is like a- appealing to that fact. Um, although, you know, I, there's some great podcasts. The, the guys on the, the Partially Examined Life, they talk about James. They talk about specifically the will to believe, I think. Um, but they also talk about pragmatism and they talk about like Dewey and stuff. So yeah. I'll send you guys the link and stuff. Um, but I think the link will be in the description below. The link will be in the description <laughs> yeah, in the show notes. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, but there, my favorite guy in the partially examined life, West. I don't know why I like him so much. He just I I like how he describes things. He, he does not like pragmatism. Um, he, he well he finds it attractive, but he has a philosophical problem with it. And that he says that he thinks that there's no way to establish a mind independent reality, right. um, yeah. because and I th- and I think James well in the preface the the preface whoever wrote the preface addressed this and he said that it's a misinterpretation and that James is saying hey experience is still a thing like there is a reality that we are experiencing right yeah and the whole point of having beliefs is to grapple with that reality. But I think what Wes is concerned about is that any statements made about that reality, you can't make them under pragmatism because ultimately those statements are understood to be a consequence of your contextualized mind. Um, and there's no direct contact with that reality at all. Uh, see, see, this is this is where it beautifully meshes with uh, Jonathan Haidt, right? This idea that, like, I mean, he he even says it in this book at some point. It's like. Uh, in the metaphysical club? Yeah, in the metaphysical, uh, metaphysical club. Metaphysical. Uh, <laughs> never can speak. Um, where, like, like, I, like ideas are, uh, like, functions of, like, societies. So, like, groups of people. So, like, when you do have this uh, kind of pluralistic, like, kind of belief, right? The belief that, okay, my experience leads to my truth and other people's experience leads to their respective truths. Um, But, like, when they come together, it seems to, like, shed light on something much bigger, right? So, like, it seems to me that it meshes with Jonathan Haidt's, like, this kind of, this idea that, like, uh, like, uh, groups, like, people cannot be rational because... 
of their own experience. Like whatever they deem rational is just like, you know, relative. But when you get into, uh, I guess, contact with other other perspectives, then it like builds upon each other, and you get like this emergent truth. Well, I think that that's exactly the problem that that guy was complaining about with Wes. Um, yeah, is that there is no way to make a claim about an external reality under pragmatism with right. everything being color relevant to yourself. But but I, see that's where I think that like I don't I don't think James ever. Like, I don't think James ever meant it to, like, towards that way. Like, it seems... I think he's saying you can make a claim about reality, mm-hmm. but... I don't know, it's a good question. Does he want you to always have this underlying... He's very... He's talking about being empirical, you know, always thinking in the particulars. Yeah. In, in framing... I think you're using truth in a way that James isn't using it, by the way. He's not using, he's talking about truth functionally as the marriage function of a belief and experience. So there would be no conclusions that would be true. Mm. There would be, yeah, there would be no conclusions that could could be said to be true for everyone, I don't think. Uh, It's still not the best way to articulate that. But But truth is relational. It's the function that the belief serves in your experience. So what I've heard is like, you come to a fork in the road and you go, I believe that there's a house down on the right. Uh, well, in that moment, that belief isn't true. But then if you go down and there's a house on the right, that belief was true. It is true. It was made true. It was true in so right. far forth that you came to the house, yeah. you know? Um, and if you went the other way, uh, then it would never have become true or whatever. You wouldn't have, like, there would be no way to evaluate its truth. Um, so it is kind of a, an empirical method. Um, but yeah, mm. I think, you know, Haidt is a social psychologist, so I think he's thinking in these, what you're describing, kinds of frameworks. Well, it's it's funny because, like, it seems that, like, James was a, a very particular mind where he also believed that, um, like, our minds were not made for, uh, like, perceiving, like, reality in, like, a, like the context of, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is, this is true. This is what reality is. But rather um, for, like, you know, obviously, like, evolutionary adaptive reasons, like, to survive, stuff like that. And, and also so, our own personal goals. Right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean... In so far as to do like whatever is necessary to survive, right? That, or, well, maybe. or whatever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he 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 tended towards like what uh, what height at least uh, says in the righteous mind. I feel like in, in the sense that uh, I don't know. I, I feel like he does though. I mean. I, I don't know. I have a hard time. I see kind of what you're saying. I just have a hard. I, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. I mean, they're both psychologists, right? There's probably yeah. some overlap. Um, what 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 I you know I I had this one existential crisis one day about cups, where I was thinking about mm-hmm. a cup. You know, so what makes a cup a cup? I mean, this is a classic thought experiment question, right? Right. You you can picture a cup having no color, like being translucent, and like you know how like in a in a comic 
or someone, something when someone's invisible, they show like this white outline. Mm-hmm. I can just picture the white outline of a cup. And, and it, it even could be kind of transparent, like when Danny Phantom can go through a wall, but he still has that white outline. Like there's still something going through the wall that is transparent. I can mm-hmm. think of a cup mm-hmm. still going through the wall. I can think of it having a bunch of holes in it, right? Like I, I can think of it being all sorts of different colors. I can think of it being different sizes. I can think of it being the size of the earth. Mm-hmm. Or I can I can stretch out all these different attributes of the cup, and it still that doesn't cease to be a cup. See, but what helped me is like pragmatically, if I were to look at an object, mm-hmm. and I would if there was just if I was to approach two people who are in this intense debate over whether this particular object was a bowl or a cup, mm-hmm. okay, um, y- you would have to go. There is no abs- metaphysical abstract abstraction and that exists there's no platonic cup you would just go what do you intend what would you use this object for would it be most efficient to sip liquid out of or to to put a bowl of cereal into like what would it be best at that's what it is Mm -hmm. right Right. and and like we call things cups that we use in a particular way we call things bowls that we use in a different way if we use them in the same way they wouldn't be different things, so to speak. They would all just be cups, or they'd all just be bowls. Yeah. But it's because we have a different usage. Um, which is to say, they exert a different influence on our experience. Mm-hmm. They make a practical difference in our life. Yeah, yeah, bowls yeah. and cups. Yeah. That's what makes them what they are. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes it There's yeah, no true for bowl. that yeah. just is like in... The, the air or whatever yeah. that you bring down and go this matches it Blah. yeah <laughs> and that's why I like it that's what I like about mm-hmm. it, it simplifies he, he's I think he's right where it simplifies those kind of silly yeah like do you know that there's a philosophy of holes there's this is kind of it's kind of fun it's kind of like I don't know some campy or something but there's a um you know is a hole a thing, or is it the absence of a thing? That's one of those questions that I think James would just be like, you stupid philosopher. Like, yeah. go out and help people. You know, stop asking about these questions. You yeah. know, what, what practical difference does it make? Whether a hole is a thing or the absence of a thing it makes no difference whatsoever. Yeah, yeah I think that pragmatism would be very efficient and helpful when talking about tangible things in that mm-hmm. regard, the, the three you just mentioned. But in the moral sphere, I still have a difficult time understanding how it can be tied down and mm-hmm. connected. Like, for example, if I'm trying to decide whether or not it's right or wrong for me to steal something, mm-hmm. and it's a function of like whether or not I can get away with it, whether or not I'll have the, the ability to bear the guilt if I do, or, you know, like the cops will discover me, like all these different components, and I weigh them, and I find, like, for instance, that I know I can get away with it, I know I won't get caught, um, and I need this money or whatever to pay rent so I don't get evicted. Let's just say. If determining whether an action is right or wrong on pragmatism, I just don't understand how that would would help me. 
Well, he's. I think what there is no route to like. So I think what pragmatism, if you were a pragmatist, yeah. what that assessment would entail would be, uh, you can't forget about all of the previous beliefs that you you hold, like all of the your stock. I think he calls it your stock. Yeah. All of that makes an impact, mm-hmm. and how you think of how you will be able to think of yourself. Um, yeah. after the fact will be depend on your stock like if you hold the belief going in um, it's wrong to steal yeah. right and if what you're doing you would definitely call stealing and you're trying to justify it to yourself then maybe after you do it you'll feel guilty and you'll feel guilty uh, because you won't you won't be able to form this new belief that excuses yourself yeah it's kind of he talks about this yeah. is a, you know what's so important is your your his your beliefs going in. We're not blank slates ever. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. I mean, yeah. He, there's this one. Well, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, I just uh, he mentioned it says this on a page, uh, on page thirty five or thirty six, thirty thirty seven for me and thirty six for y'all. Okay. Thirty eight for y'all. I don't remember. Okay. I said I just I said just now that what is better for us to believe is true. Unless the belief incidental, incidentally mm-hmm. clashes with some other vital belief. Now, in real life, what vital belief benefit is any particular belief of ours most liable to clash with? What, yeah. What indeed except the vital benefits yielded by other beliefs when these prove incompatible with the first ones? In other words, the greatest enemy of any one of our truths may be the rest of our truths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it seems to me that pragmatism then is relevant when you're in the world, growing in the world, maybe, out of your language, and you're trying to figure out where to go next or how to interpret the world, but you have something coming in already, mm-hmm. like your past experiences, your past beliefs, and all this stuff. So I can see that as being helpful, but I think when trying to determine between worldviews or life philosophies I think it's still maybe difficult so I don't see how the criteria by which you bring up I guess is not more than just an assertion really of what you want to be true what you think is right Mm -hmm. you know these different things that you're weighing against each other it's like well, but then again, this, maybe it's not what pragmatism is supposed to be. I think that maybe I'm trying to give it a scope that it's not intended for. I think it's about the best way to put it. I think is like how to frame the question. Yeah. So, like, if you're in the instance of like you're considering stealing something. Yeah. If you're what you're really trying to determine is is this thing right or wrong. I think he would go, what difference would it make if it were wrong? What difference would it make would it right, if it were right? And how would that manifest in your life? Yeah. Like, what would be the difference? In terms of, like, how to determine whether it's right or wrong, I think, you know what's strange about pragmatism is, like, in a way, it's a philosophy, but in another way, it's a description of what you do mm-hmm. when you come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And the... There's a, it's almost like, 
it's a philosophy made out of the emphasis of that process in of itself. So like, yeah. it, it just, just, so say you were totally, didn't even know about pragmatism or whatever, yeah. and you just came to the conclusion, it's wrong for me to steal this in this moment. It's almost like the pragmatic method would accurately describe your ending up coming to that belief because you have other beliefs and presumably you, you ended up thinking that it was wrong due in part to those other beliefs and the particulars of the situation and what you want your future life to look like. Right. right? So in a way, you are a an implicit pragmatist or something. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of weirds me out a little bit, but what I like is that it reminds me of the the facts of our... Psych- I, it constantly is recontextualizing us within our own lives, uh, which I think is what we need. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing would be, are you asking the question, is it metaphysically wrong for me to steal this? Um, that would be a different question, I think, than it, is it wrong for me to steal you know, yeah. it takes you out of the particular circumstances of your life. Like, okay, here, I wrote a blog post about this. Like, you, you people make these broad statements. Ah, like, it is right to help an old lady across the street. Yeah. Right? These are just, uh, oh, he, he calls them, they're like, they're like common sense ideas that are typically true, maybe. Um, but you can totally think of counterfact, of, of situations in which it would not be right to help the old lady across the street. Mm-hmm. But what is implicit in those statements is an entire set of particular circumstances mm-hmm. that, that, that just aren't involved. Like, yeah. you might go, but what if I pickpocket the lady while I help her across the street? Or what if I'm neglecting my wife who's falling in, falling on the other side of the street to help the old Like, yeah. there's all kinds of things and people will just be like, well, that's not what it means to help, you know? Yeah, isn't that what... Um, Daniel was saying about ethics that Bonhoeffer is that you you really can never make a moral judgment outside of the particulars of the mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, I think that's what I was Daniel saying. It's, it's, it's just inappropriate. Because you can, there's all, it can always be some extraneous circum- or context that can change yeah. your, whatever judgment. Right? And to make yeah. a general rule is almost meaningless because so, you, yeah. you came to the conclusion the conclusion that you made is contingent upon the particular circumstances right. of the situation in which you made it. Yeah. And for you to, to generalize is to just basically generalize in the hopes that in the circumstances in which that generalization would be applicable, the particular elements are at least very comparable. You know, yeah. like in every circumstance that's kind of like this, it would be right to do X. It's like, uh, how useful is that? You know, when are you? Yeah. When is that going to happen again? You know, yeah. um, in, in the same way that it did. You know, like we we kind of form abstractions to abstract categories that we put experiences in, mm-hmm. and then we say across those experiences, it's best to do X or Y. But it's kind of a heuristic. Yeah, it's provisional. It's like, hey, it most likely is the case mm-hmm. that it is good to do this thing, but it might not be. So I found the quote that made me think of Hyde. Um, this is in the Metaphysical oh. Club. Um, it says, uh, No belief, James thought, is justified by its correspondence to with reality, because mirroring reality is not 
the purpose of having minds. Mm. Uh, mm. And I mean, mm. the, uh, to me, I was like, well, yeah. it's obviously like evolutionary psychology. Like, yeah, that's that's like one of the biggest things from what I understand. To like, we we are, like the there's always a there was a predominant belief there might still be that like our minds were like we're here to like figure out what reality is and of course our experience leads us to believe that this is obviously finite this is obviously like factual from our point of view and therefore from other people's point of view mm-hmm. and so um, I mean this kind of thinking is like I would imagine like super radical like over a hundred years ago right I don't know. Well, I, that's the thing I found really interesting was he was like the ancients used this technique. They just mm-hmm. didn't bridge it to a full encompassing philosophy. Oh right, right, right. Where yeah. he was like, this agrees with like from like Aristotle to Socrates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you know the really strange thing is, so like we see colors, right? Mm. Birds see more colors than we do. Certain right. birds, certain birds, it's like they see uh, they have like a um, like a wider ultraviolet receptors in their eyes, mm-hmm. um, they literally see the colors of the world different. Are we seeing reality? Are, are the colors that we're seeing reality, or is the colors the birds seeing reality? Like that—that that shows the extent mm-hmm. to which I can't even conceive of what you would mean right. by reality. It, it is what we experience. That's the only thing I can even conceptualize as being reality. Reality, apart from how I perceive it, it's beyond my my imagination. Right. I can't even imagine it. I don't even know what it would be. Um, and like it, so many aspects of, um, oh, you know what? Let me read. There's this. Not going to read you this long thing, but so he, he talks about how our ideas actually are our experiences to some extent. And it reminded me, so in the preface of ours, it talks about how Zimmel, uh, George Zimmel was a, a sympathetic, at least a cognitive. Mm-hmm. And for my class, uh, um, my first semester, uh, we had to pick uh, a work by a, a famous, um, by one of the sociologists that we were reading. Okay. Everyone else in my class picked like a, one that was on the assigned reading list. And I was like, I'm going to pick this super short essay. Um, <laughs> they were picking like entire books and I picked like a five page long essay and then I got away with it but <laughs> it's by Zimmel Zimmel is a philosopher but he's primarily I think a, he's most remembered I believe for his sociology but that might just be because I'm in the sociology department and maybe that's what it's remembered for in there anyways it's called The Stranger and it's all about what makes people strange to us and he talks about The Stranger Okay, because, and think about the particular feeling of the strange. The strange is different from something that you understand and differ yourself from. It's not the other. The stranger is both, he says, um, strangest means that he who is also far is actually near. In the sense that the stranger is someone you kind of know, but also don't understand. They live in this crossroads. That's what makes them strange. Because if they weren't strange, they'd either be someone who you associated with, you understood 
as in, and you can understand someone as being either an in-group or an out-group member. But this person is strange because they ride the lines. Mm. Uh, so there's this one, I'll just read this one particular part. There's a couple paragraphs, but there's, they're short. Um, in the relation to the stranger, it seems to me this constellation has an extraordinary and basic preponderance over the individual elements that are exclusive with the particular relationship. The stranger is close to us insofar as we feel between him and ourselves common features of a national, social, occupational, or generally human nature. But he is far from us insofar as these common features extend beyond him or us and connect us only because they connect a great many people. So someone might be, uh, oh, he's a human being. Well, or, or he's an American or something. That still doesn't, there can still be elements we can feel strange. So here's, here's a really good part. He says, a, a trace of strangeness in this sense easily enters even the most intimate relationships. In the stage of first passion, erotic relations, relations strongly reject any thought of generalization. The lovers think that there has never been a love like theirs, that nothing can be compared either to the person loved or to the feelings for that person. In estrangement, whether as cause or as consequence, it is difficult to decide, usually comes at the moment when this feeling of uniqueness vanishes from the relationship. Uh, a certain skepticism in regard to its value in itself and for them attaches to the very thought that in their relation, after all, they, ca they carry out only a generally human destiny, that they experience an experience that has occurred a thousand times before, that had they not accidentally met their particular partner, they would have found the same significance in another person. Mm -hmm. So the idea is like, and, and Zimmel says he's not even sure which thing comes first, the idea or the feeling. But what this remark, James things, fits with this, where if you have this, you're having the experience of being in love with someone, and it's so overwhelming, this experience, that you form these beliefs about what it is that you're experiencing. Oh, we're soulmates. We're, you know, we're, we're special. This relationship is special ontologically. It's like, it's, it has a different status ontologically. Mm -hmm. But then, once that changes, once like you break up, then the all the romance drains away and your, your entire story, your beliefs about what that person is changes. And interestingly, you know what I've noticed? So people, they break up and then suddenly it's like, oh, she was a bitch all along, yeah. you know? And, and then she wasn't just a bitch all along, but now how you talk about her and relate to her has changed. Right. And then usually over time, once they get over their resentment, mm -hmm. then it's like, oh yeah, she was cool. And I was just, you know, it just didn't work out or whatever. Yeah. And your story, your ideas, they, they don't just stem from the, the experiences that you're having, but they predict them. That's really interesting. And in terms of what is considered strange is what you don't have an idea for. What you don't have an idea for. What doesn't match your idea is strange. A person you can't categorize is the stranger. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. I wonder, this is a little bit unrelated from James, but that his comment about, like, this love must be special. I'm thinking like, oh, like the knowledge of I could have this with someone else kind of like kills it. I didn't really, I didn't like think about that before. Like, do you think you guys think that's true? Like, like that for this particular love and, and relationship needs to be unique. 
for it to be. I, I, I think, I mean, I'm, how I think of it might be a little <laughs> depressing, but I, I think of it in a similar fashion where, like, it's a compatibility of love. So, like, there's obviously people that you've ran across that are, like, you're like, I, you're, I mean, you're obviously attracted to people. Yeah. You're not attracted to other people. But the way I think of it is that you're going to be, there are multiple people that you're going to be so quote unquote compatible with. Quote unquote, you have the experience of your life with, right? And I don't think it takes that, I don't think it takes away from that particular person and the experiences that you've had with them that there are other people that you can have like relatively similar uh, quote unquote love of your life with. Right. Yeah. But I think it's it's all in the sense of like uh, your 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 compatibility. So like how yeah uh, you bounce off each other and whatever context around like how you met and the experiences that you have. Because yeah. in, a, in a lot of times, uh, I feel like your experiences are definitely like ex- like it, they are super dependent upon uh, the context that you're in. Mm-hmm. So for, I, I forget where I heard this from, but um, there was a person and he was, uh, you know, abroad. And so he met another American. And when they met, they had this chemistry, right? They were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, they, they had the like time of their life. They, they bonded so well that night that they were abroad, right? They, they exchanged contacts and they're like, yeah, if you're ever in this town, let me know. Well, the author finds himself in that town later on in his life uh, and they, they, they meet up, they link up and, uh, and he found him like insufferable. He was like, this guy is like just ordinary. Like, I, I don't know what I found so appealing. But yeah. I mean, his theory, was that, you know, the context in which they were the only two Americans, that identity was so unique in abroad, yeah. brought them together. Whereas in America, I mean, that's everyone. Mm. So the differences were uh, more emphasized than the similarities. It makes sense. Yeah. America. I think of it a little differently where I agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is that, let's see. People who are over, they don't, they, they, usually they've broken up, right? Or they're thinking about breaking up. Mm. The romance of the relation between that person and their partner has faded. Mm-hmm. And in an interesting way, once that, once the uniqueness and the beauty of it fades, they start thinking of the relationship less as this, as like, they start thinking of it in terms of like kind of structural or functional terms as like uh, as conce- in conceptual terms and they, and they don't think of it in terms of the substance of the relation mm-hmm. and I'm, this is a weird thing that happens that I've noticed where people think they start it's only after the romance has faded that they really start thinking I could have similar uh, relationships with other people there's nothing special about this relationship mm-hmm. and what they mean is that they could they could form what would be a structurally similar relationship 
Mm-hmm. However, it's apparent the content of a relationship that you have with one person will be different from the relationship that you have with a different person mm-hmm. just yeah. due to the fact that they're different people, right? right. You just know that. But so they're speaking in, in, in kind of structural terms. But the person who's happy with their relationship and it's they it's still it's retained its romance and, and its sense of the sense of uniqueness is tied to your being happy in it, I think. Mm. Um, right, right. Yeah, because yeah. you yeah. think it's special. Right. Because um, it is yeah. special in your experience, yeah. right? Yeah. It exactly. only ceases to be special in your experience once you get over the person and you start daydreaming about being with other people, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then you're like, oh, I, Susie seems nice or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. like, even, even with the... the that's the thing like even if the sense of compatibility extends to more than that one individual person it doesn't take away anything from that individual experience that you've had with that person it's still special and whatever you found is like still compatible in like in whatever respect that you found it yeah yeah I think I think initially that struck me as as wrong because I was thinking Theoretically, you could be in a relationship and be happy mm-hmm. and to have a thought, I could be with someone else and also be happy. Mm-hmm. And that could not really affect the relationship. They could still continue on being happy and like the love and not just vanish, which seems kind of counter that statement. But then I thought about, you also have to think about to get exactly to where you are in a particular relationship where you are happy it would be effort and work and the building would make it unique again. So it goes yeah. back to the uniqueness. Yeah. Which, that's interesting. It's a good, I, didn't, I never really thought about it in those terms. Um, because I, I did consider it kind of like a trope that like, oh, I love is special. Like no one else, but like every love story is the same almost. You know, it seems <laughs> like, so what, where is the, yeah. but I guess in a sense it is because like you're one particular relationship with one person locked in a time and environment in a period of your life that you can never return to is unique. and what you mean by uh, a romantic relationship it's this it's the same structurally of a story because it's the same structural relationship yeah but the content of it will be different yeah um there's this uh, zimmel uh in um the web of association i think is the essay mm-hmm. he he talks about uh, what's objective conceptual and then um What's the other one? Um, God, I can't remember the other term, but I just love the term objective conceptual mm-hmm. because that phrase, it, 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 it applies buckets in my mind or, or like spaces of structures that are colorless mm-hmm. and the particular circumstances in which they are existing is what colors them, yeah, right? Okay. So like a, a romantic relationship for most people, I think, retains a lot of structural similarities, particularly like if we're thinking about Western boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband relationships, they're, they're probably largely similar functionally, structurally. So it's like a cultural thing, right? Uh, maybe so. I mean, there's probably, you know, marriage in India shares a similar function, I think, to marriage elsewhere. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, but in but yeah, but in terms of like, well, I mean, like this, a patriarchal relationship in Saudi Arabia is called a relationship, and they're called husband and wife. But of mm-hmm. course, structurally, it'll 
Hopefully, I would say look different than the average relationship here. That's my uh, that's my cultural chauvinism talking. I do, yeah. You know, so one thing I liked was on. Oh, he talks about so in this he's talking about magical words on the part of rationalistic metaphysicians, magical words that that answer all the questions that make you feel comforted. And so for me, it's page 28. And he gives some examples. Uh, so he, he said, The universe always has appeared to the natural mind as a kind of enigma, of which the key must be sought in the shape of some illuminating or power-bringing word or name. Interestingly, side note, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, um, you couldn't, like, the name of God was something that you didn't say. You said Jehovah, right? Or Yahweh. Uh, was what, Yahweh was what you said. And Yahweh was a was a always uh, the name the name but it wasn't the name of God it was like yeah. what you said instead of saying God there was something about you're not supposed to say the name of God yeah. explicitly right. um, interesting uh, because of the power of the word um, and not just the word the meaning behind the word anyway so James goes on to say that word names the universe's principle singular and to possess it is after and, and to possess it is after a fashion to possess the universe itself. God, matter, reason, the absolute, energy, are so many solving names. You can rest when you have them. You are at the end of your metaphysical quest. Yeah, and I, I love that. that he put God and reason. Yeah, 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 you yeah, know, yeah. like the guy who's like, well, that's not reasonable, is the guy who is saying God wouldn't like. They're the same people. Mm-hmm. They have this, this, this source, this epistemological wellspring that they can point to and it's in this one thing of God or reason or science you know Um, and I think he's really against that that singular that unidimensionality right right yeah yeah Yeah. I like the the next paragraph too theories thus become instruments not answers to enigmas on which we can rest Hmm. oh yeah and and further down the, the paragraph right after that one he says uh, all of these you see are anti-intellectualist tendencies against rationalism as a pretension and a method. Pragmatism is fully armed and militant. I like that. Mm. Oh yeah, and here's a here's a quote where it says, uh, "As the young Italian pragmatist Papini, Papini, right? uh, no, no, no. that's how I would say, has well said, it lies in the midst of our theories like a corridor in a hotel. Mm-hmm. So that's where I read it. Yeah." Yeah, I really like that analogy. I thought that was really clever. Oh, you have one room, you have the man praying, the next room you have a man with a cauldron. Right, so, yeah, exactly. And when I read this, and especially after, like, I mean, like, the God matter reason, obviously it's like his his sights are on all of these, like, solving words. Like, his emphasis to me, or how I read it, seems like he's saying, uh, like, you can get to these, like, practical... Um, cash values through like these different things but the emphasis like it seems like the structure of how he said it is to like realize the um that other people have that difference and that's like the the mental framing that he wants you to have right i think okay i wrote this short little thing down as what i think this is when we were talking the other day this is what i was trying to come up with an example like this Mm. So say a guy named Jim has a headache, 
And he tells all his friends, he swears that taking a shot of apple cider, vi- apple cider vinegar uh, cures his headaches. Um, little does he know that it is not the vinegar, uh, but the caffeine in the coffee that he always drinks right after downing the vinegar to clear the taste out of his mouth, uh, which is alleviating his pain. Mm. So the, he, he says drinking apple cider vinegar. And what he's referring to in his experience is what is involved in drinking apple cider vinegar. He's not thinking of the coffee, but in in his lived life, what drinking apple cider vinegar means is having a shot, a shot of apple cider vinegar and then drinking some caffeinated coffee yeah. uh, to get the taste out of his mouth. And those things are connected, but he doesn't realize it. Uh, this belief... Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so this belief that the vinegar helps, however, um, has been made true through its usefulness, right, to him. Um, this belief helps his head. It positively impacts his experience. But then I say, one day, somehow, through a series of events, he, he figures out that it is actually the coffee. But wait, it is actually never the coffee at all. It was the fact that he would take a short walk in the fresh air while drinking his coffee that actually improved his head. Right? Yeah. The, the, thing, the point is just that there's something doing it, and you might start to kind of figure out what it is, mm-hmm. but what it is is all is always the thing. Uh, it's always the thing that's the most plausible story, given your experiences of what it is that's helping you. Mm-hmm. You 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 might be able to change that over time, but the thing that is that you can count on as helping you, that is the true thing, and you might learn that it's not that thing, but something else. But then that's the true thing, provisionally, until you realize the next thing that's actually true. Right. You know? But all along, you're, you're still having the apple cider vinegar, drinking the coffee, going on a walk. Yeah. Uh, and it's just what makes sense of, say, one day you have the coffee and you're out of apple cider vinegar. You have this new experience. Well, now your belief changes. And what I like to think about is the beliefs are people's best bet right now at explaining their experience. The beliefs are how people make sense of their past experience. Yeah. And that's it. And if you have a new experience that alters some belief, you'll likely adjust a little bit with your beliefs to, to accommodate that new experience. So that's helped me a lot. Thinking about that has helped me a lot when I think about people who have really strange beliefs that I'm like, what on earth? Right. You know? Well, it's just something about that makes sense to them. Yeah. And it and explains things in their life. And um, I might disagree about that actually explaining, actually. Mm-hmm. But to them, what they're calling those things explains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know what? It reminds me a lot about, uh, what's it called? Um, so so the, the, there's this one passage in the metaphysical book where he's like, if you look up a word in the dictionary, you may be... You've, you will find that it is defined by a string of other words, the meaning of which can be discovered by looking them up in a dictionary, leading to more words to be looked up in turn. So it's like this, like that reminds me of like Nietzsche's like um, metaphor, metaphorical like truth, right? Like That's this, Nietzsche? Well, the, the, the thing where he's like, uh, we, we think of ideas um, in relation to other ideas. Mm. We only think in terms of metaphor. Oh, so yeah. like, and, and I think he goes on to say that pragmatism is this like idea that like, it's like ideas in, in relation to other like things. I think. 
to other ideas. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. I mean, the point is, is that like, I don't know. It's like, it's always like your uh, your experience is always in relation to, um, I guess. Well, how you categorize your experience is a matter of ideas, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to... And it's relative to other people's conception of what you're saying, right? Relative? I don't know what you mean by that. Like, I mean, in the sense that, like, what you might categorize as something is not going to be what they categorize as. Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. All right, I wanted to read you a quote from Jordan Peterson's The Twelve Rules for Life mm-hmm. to support my argument that he is secretly a James fanatic. Although I've never, you know, I've never heard him reference James. But he sure seems to be a pragmatist. I've never even heard well, him talk about pragmatism. But listen to this. Mm-hmm. He, this is a paragraph from his book. Uh, everyone needs a concrete, specific goal, an ambition and a purpose to limit chaos and make intelligible sense of his or her life. But all such concrete goals can and should be subordinated to what might be considered a medical, which is a way of approaching and formulating goals themselves. The medical could be live in truth, and this means act diligently towards some well-articulated, defined, temporary end. Make your criteria for failure and success timely and clear, at least for yourself. Even better if others can understand what you are doing and evaluate it with you. While doing so, however, allow the world and your spirit to unfold as they will, while you act out and articulate the truth. This is both, he says, pragmatic ambition, but he's not referring to the philosophical tradition, and the most courageous of faiths. Um, And he also talks about the past appears fixed, but it's not not in an important psychological sense. There's an awful lot to the past, after all, and the way we organize it can be subject to drastic revision. The present can change the past, and the future can change the present. All of this seems very Jamesian to me, um, mm. very pra- pragmatic in the sense that what, like, is it live in truth, artic- act out the truth, articulate the truth. Yeah. The truth here is not... Um, a propositional truth. Yeah. I don't think it's something. Maybe maybe he's just speaking from his like psychi- psychiatric experience or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's just it's the truth is in relative to the goal that you set. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So like, what is true is what is expedient towards that goal. Yeah. yeah. Which is what? Do you remember? Did y'all listen to when Sam Harris first had? Joe Rogan on his not Joe Rogan Jordan Peterson on his podcast the truth podcast and yeah and they like argued for two hours about truth yeah um I went I went back and listened to that again yeah. and gosh James uh no James Jordan sure seems to be talking like James the entire time yeah completely yeah James. and, and Sam even says that he's being a pragmatist like uh Richard Worry um pretty sure oh yeah Richard yeah, yeah. Richard Worry is a pragmatist yeah. he's the, he's the guy that did the nineties revival of pragmatism. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's oh. interesting. I, I just put two and two together. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I, I never noticed that in Sam's thing. I listened to Which, that podcast twice. I never listened to that 
video you sent, but basically being like if Jordan believes in God or not is whether or not he acts it out. Yeah. Which is like... Yeah, which is... Exactly. Yeah, what practical difference would it entail for your life if you believed in God? Yeah. And that actually defines what God is for you, too. Right, right. Which is really interesting to think about. Something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. Like, what people mean when they say, I believe in God, has made less and less sense to me <laughs> as each day goes by. <laughs> See, that, that's why I always felt that Sam and Jordan, like, talk past each other. Totally. They, they're... Like, they're, there's, like, no... They're not even talking about the same thing. And I don't know why they... Like, my, like, I didn't understand Jordan to begin with. And when I read Jonathan Haidt, I was like, oh, okay, this is how he's coming at this. Because uh, Jordan Peterson was a bit elusive for me, like how he speaks. He's very romantic. Right? And so my tendency to take, like, things literally, like, hindered that. And so when, when I read Jonathan Haidt, and, like, uh, the, I, I completely understood what that was but I I never put like the, the truth to it that, that's mm. interesting I don't know I think you know people like Haidt and, and like um, other psychologists they who are philosophically minded I think their philosophy is informed by their psychology and I think mm. people who are typically philosophers their mm. psychology is informed by their philosophy I'm personally drawn to the previous to the former because I think our psychology molds what we understand to be philosophy and I think that's how James I think James is doing that as well right what does the latter mean that our philosophies are you saying that like some people believe that I think or some people have that I, I think um, what I mean is like I think how we think is less important for certain people if they're starting with an idea that the universe can be rationally organized. And then it's like, how my cognitive biases and my uh, the bias from my temperament, that's something that might could be factored in at the end, but it's far less important. Mm-hmm. Whereas James is going, the fundamental oh, reality yeah, is yeah, determined yeah. in part by your temperament. Right. Not a lot of people do that. You know, Sam, people like Sam Harris and... The new atheist types, I think, yeah. would, are, would be categorized not on the tough-minded side, but on the tender-minded side. Mm-hmm. They are far more rational. They are rationalists in the, the almost the pure sense, right? Yeah. Like Sam Harris and people like him, yeah. Matt Dillahunty, they are dogmatic. And they yeah. do believe in science as the way forward and yeah. as the, the, the ultimate arbiter of truth. And what they mean by science is kind of like current conclusions are metaphysically true. Um, they, yeah. they're not, they don't mean that in, I think, a Jamesy, Jamesian provisional sense. I think they be, would be far more... But what's interesting is I think it, Sam would think of himself as tough-minded and Jordan as tender-minded, but I really think it's the reverse. Mm-hmm. I think you have Jordan, who's the, the ultimate empiricist, saying, yeah, Sam, you think... Uh, you, know, sci- you know, you can know things meant to be metaphysically true but that's just a consequence of your uh you know your temperament and the fact that you're you know trained as a neuroscientist and you you think in very hard sciencey ways Mm -hmm. and um you you know i think part of part of their disagree they're just totally different people temperamentally i think um 
and, and you, you have Peterson who is, I think, you know, in psychology and in, in psychiatry is an applied science. That's what's really interesting to think about is yeah. like, what is true is what helps the client. Yeah. That's what is true. It's an applied science. And it's very it's a very different way of approaching truth just in that discipline than a neuroscientist. Because a, a neuroscientist isn't asking what is helpful to people. He's asking something, you know, Different. well how can I predict things in it yeah. among these organs or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And then I'm trying to think this through. Well, I think I will go ahead and sign off on the podcast recording right now. This has been a... We've talked for two and a half hours. I think this has been a great start. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear what uh, Mario and Scott and Nathan have to say about the next two lectures. Maybe the next two. Yeah. 